Welcome in to the Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. We have a very interesting show for you today, a show that centers around a murder. A murder that had to happen in a very controversial area of Boston. It involves some racial tension. It involves some societal tension. It involves a time in our history where everything just kind of comes together in one big explosive pot in Boston, Massachusetts. It's intriguing. This this book is very intriguing, folks. It's a book that I'd like you to check out uh, because it brings us back to a time in our history where we can feel a certain amount of shame as to how we reacted to one another. Murder, Race, and Boston's Struggle for Justice, The Combat Zone is the name of the book. And our guest today is Jan Brogan. Uh, Jan is a journalist from, and has been a journalist for more than 30 years, working as a correspondent for the Boston Globe, a staff writer for the Worcester Telegram and the Providence Journal, where she won the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business Writing. She's the award-winning author for of four mysteries, Final Copy, Confidential Source, Yesterday's Fatal, and Teaser, Transactional Pictures, uh, purchased the rights to a confidential source, which is currently under development for a television series. She grew up in Clifton, New Jersey, and moved to New England to study journalism at Boston University. She holds a master's degree in English from the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She continues to work as a novelist and a journalist, and she teaches writing at the Boston University Summer Journalism Institute. She lives with her husband in a Boston suburb. Let's welcome in to True Crime Tuesday, Jan Brogan. Jan, how are you? Good, it's fine. Tim, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Um, what I find interesting about the book, and we'll talk about your background here in just a moment, but what I find fascinating about just this time period and writing about this time period is the pot of trouble and turmoil that we're, we're jumping into here, a time in Boston's history. And, I, and I've heard some, and forgive me if I say this, and I, I know it, it sounds inflammatory when I say it, I have friends of, of African-American background that tell me when you ask them, what's the most controversial city you've ever been to? What's the city you feel most uncomfortable going to? They tell me it's Boston. Yeah, it's got that. It's got that rap. And um, the 70s are a good, are good uh, illustration of that. Um, mm -hmm. I think things are, are better now. Mm -hmm. um, but it was the starting level was so low. Um, it was really the seventies was really like a, you know, when I looked at the data, it's, it wasn't racial tension. It was a racial war. You know, they were, there were, I think the first time the city kept, kept, uh, stats on it or collected stats were like 607 racial incidents in a year reported to the Ooh. police. That's black on white, white on black, you know, that's not, or, or Hispanic. It wasn't, we're not even talking about hate crimes, distinct, you know, with other other minorities, this was just and um, and those were the ones that were reported. That was 1978. That was wow. probably not the peak either. Probably wow. the peak was in 76. So you know, people were. I mean, it, it was so violent. Um, it was just so violent. But you know, because of busing. Yeah. Uh, but you know, yeah. because of busing. But busing was the culmination of many years of of uh, racism. What was the, besides busing, why the tribalism? Why the, you know, because it's it's broken down into areas. As you put it so brilliantly in the book, 
I mean, you've got Southie and South Boston, you've got the North End, you've got these different areas of Boston that are very much tribal is and, and broken up by ethnic group. Why is it that there is such tribalism when you look at an area like not too far away from you in New York, where, mind you, it's tribal, but at the same time, you did have some crossover and you did have different ethnic groups that, although they didn't really, I mean, they. St- I'm going to use some, some terms here that, that may make people cringe, but it's the way it was at the time. Yeah. Although they stuck to their own kind, they also did associate with one another. Do you know what yeah. I'm saying? Why, why is it that in Boston they couldn't do that, but in New York they could? Well, interestingly, you know, Boston is so small compared to New York, you know, mm-hmm. and so much less, um, so much more parochial. Um, but part of it is geography. The way, I mean, every city, I'm, I'm sure Chicago, there's, you know, I, I, even Clifton where I grew up, there was the Lithuanian block and the Polish block and the Irish, you know, areas. So every, every, city probably every state is like that to a certain degree in boston um it was magnified by the fact that you know southeast is a peninsula surrounded on three sides by water mm-hmm. uh uh Ch- charles charlestown is um you know surrounded by you know water the uh, the north end which was the italian area has got water on one side and then it had the highway on the other so there was so big parts of it are really geographically isolated also the 70s, also the 70s are the baby boom. So we have a lot of young men, a yeah. lot of young men just looking for fights. And that is that is that is a, you know, a, an aspect that 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 uh, gets overlooked sometimes the baby boom element, you know, like they, they were looking for fights with the Irish and the, and the Italians were looking for fights with each other, let alone they got the, the blacks from Roxbury or or, or uh, Dorchester. So um, and, and also Boston. It's hard to believe now because Boston is so affluent now. Boston was really poor. It was poorer than other cities. It was like had the highest and had the highest rate of uh, urban white poverty in the nation. Oh, wow. And part of that reason was it had more immigration than other cities mm-hmm. because it had, uh, the late 60s had opened up uh, more numbers to immigration. So you had you had a lot of Irish coming in here, still still new, you know, still mm-hmm. just, right off the boat as they say you had a lot of poor people came to boston because it had this great reputation ironically for education and then when you have new a high immigrant population you have more poverty because they just got here right mm-hmm. so you you know they haven't gotten jobs yet also it, it, there was something like a 20 percent unemployment rate in black neighborhoods 15 percent unemployment rate in the white neighborhood that's that's huge. That's a big factor contributing to the violence. So um, when they, you know, and then the, the school committee had resisted really, really, the school, and also the school committee was set up, and they want to go back to this sometimes, and like, say, oh, it's so crazy to even think about it. School committee people were elected at large. So yeah. you had people elected, elected um, to, to advance their degrees, advance their political careers. It was a springboard to state house or even you know net or national league so they didn't they felt they cared they didn't care about education as much as they cared about their their political base so they really used racism to their advantage you know like they they the federal government told them they had to desegregate and they said no we're not doing that you mm-hmm. know we're keeping it the way we've always done it and you know the federal government said okay look just come up with some reasonable way to integrate the schools 
like you know like magnet schools there were a lot of, there were a lot of opportunities missed opportunities and by the time uh judge garrity issued that order he was at the end of his rope and uh and and the 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 ruling was the solution busing was crazy it was punitive you took you started it by taking the the black neighborhood and put it in Southie, the most violent neighborhood and switching. And what you were doing was you were taking kids from one underperforming school and putting them into an even more underperforming school. There was no net gain for education here. So, um, you know, overall busing just led to all whites leaving, leaving the city and, or putting their kids in parochial school. So there was, it was just, it was just a bad, it was a bad solution to a bad problem. And so the city exploded. And that 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 busing just left a long legacy, you know, and, and the coverage as a media person, like, you know, the coverage of that, the only images you ever saw on TV of black people were those in a riot or yeah. committing a crime. Yeah. You know, so it, it just it just fostered a really bad situation for a long time. And I do I do believe a lot has been done, particular under me. Uh, Mayor Ray Flynn mm-hmm. to improve the city. He mm-hmm. did he did a lot of things, a, a lot of important things that I think improved the city. Um, but it takes a long time. You know? That it does. It, it, racial divide doesn't heal overnight. It doesn't. It doesn't even heal within 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, it's it's something that ingrains itself in a society, and it's hard to it's hard to smooth things over because one little incident can break those wounds wide open all over again. And, and they kept blacks out of power, but now we have a we have a I think a pr- predominantly um, we have a, a we have a, a minor, minority like woman mayor mayor mm-hmm. uh, Wu, but we and we have a lot of the, the, the city council's black, the, the the police commissioner's black. We have a black congresswoman. Uh, you know, we we the prop that was was all Irish or Italian in those days. So there there has been progress. So I don't you know. Yeah, but the good thing about doing research on the seventies, mm-hmm. if you think you're living in the worst times, <laughs> you think you're living in the worst of times, and then when you start researching the seventies, go, oh no, we actually are doing better, you know? Yeah, because it's all it's all relative. But the seventies were a mess, particularly in Boston. Well, not only on top of the the situation with busing, you also had police corruption as well. Yeah within yes. Boston, which was huge. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about that for a moment, Jan, because police corruption really led to some of the issues yeah. that we're going to talk about here within the combat zone book. What was yeah. going on within the police department? So, um, well, again, the, the, the police department was Irish run um, and, you know, heavily, heavily unionized and, you know, was not, uh, it, it had just started to, you know, um, it just started to uh, respond to, I think, federal uh, requirements that it integrate. So the numbers of uh, and and if you did have, you know, a black or a, a you know Asian cop, he had not risen through the ranks yet. So it was still uh, in the power seat. It was still all white Irish Italian. So it was so corrupt that um, Mayor White went outside to hire um, a hire a police commissioner from. Uh, from San Francisco to come and uh, De Grazia, Robert De Grazia, to to clean up the corruption. And De Grazia, who I was very lucky to have interviewed like a year before he passed away, said he knew he was 
he knew he was hired to to clean up corruption. He just didn't realize it was the most corrupt police department in the nation. It was so corrupt that when he got here, uh, you know, he, he tried he he tried to he, he found that he couldn't do anything with the unions and he, he wasn't getting the support he needed. So I love this part. He did a secret investigation into his own police department. So he started, he, he, he got a team and a secret investigation surveilling his own police department. And uh, two weeks, a week, I think it was two weeks before this murder, maybe it was only a week and a half before this murder, he released the results of that report. It was like a 572 page report that mm-hmm. detailed police corruption, like from the small to the large. And, and you have to remember, too, this is 1976. This is the heyday of the mob. Yeah. And the North End, which is the Italian section of, of uh, at the time, the Italian section of Boston, is the headquarters for the Massachusetts mob. The real New England headquarters in Providence. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it, the Angiulo family is is running it in Boston. And, you know, Boston is also so small that it was really, he did a thing on uh, District 1, which, which included the combat zone, which was the red light district, um, the waterfront business section, and, and the North End. And they found that um, the police were corrupt in like little ways and and little ways like, you know, just like letting all mobsters double or triple park, you know, yep. to uh, the the cops were um, extorting sex from the prostitutes in the combat zone to uh, to to they were actually tipping off the mob to invest their own their own department's investigations. And, and then as a result, they had to sometimes come up with, you know, numbers on, on, on arrests. So they would arrest like the low level hustlers, mm-hmm. particularly in the combat zone. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it was, it was just, um, there was one episode they called the golden boys. Two of the cops would not only exploit, uh, sex from like a black prostitute, but then drop drive to drop her off in Southie, which was, and then honk the horns, throw her out of the car and honk the horn so she'd get attacked. Oh my god. Yeah. So that's wow. that's that's what Boston was like that in the in in nineteen seventy seventy six. So that and that report also really affected this crime in that um so remember it so the combat zone is a four block area. Mm-hmm. And Boston had really kind of shocked the nation by uh zoning it as an adult entertainment district. Remember, right. Boston is known best for being uptight and puritanical and banning Walt Whitman's uh, Leaves of Grass. Right. And this is a problem that all cities across the nation are are, are struggling with at this time, because remember, this is before the Internet. Mm-hmm. And if yes. you wanted to, if you wanted pornography, you had to buy it in a magazine or go to a strip club or come or, or go to a, 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 uh, an R-rated film, not an X-rated film, uh, and or, this this happened. Or, or a bookstore. Yeah, or a bookstore. Yep. The bookstores were really big, and they were yep. kind of like, they were more involved than just a big bookstore, but um, they would come down to, uh, and this was, and they were taking up inner, inner city space, and they were growing, and the neighborhoods were all worried that it's going to come to their neighborhood. And because of uh, Supreme Court decisions, uh, a recent Supreme Court decision making it harder to define um, obscenity, and also a state, a Massachusetts High Court um, decision 
the the city was had its hands tied in restricting it. So they finally came up with Congressman Barry Frank, who was actually at the time uh, working for City Hall as an aide, came up with the idea or you, you couldn't outlaw it, but you could restrict it. And now, so in other words, if you said it was allowed within this four block area, then it would could be illegal everywhere else. Wasn't the combat zone the result of trying to scale down a, a, a former zone that they had had of, of uh, I forget what it was called. Was didn't Oh, they, Scully Square? Yeah, yeah. No, so Scully Square was earlier. So Scully, Scully Square was in the 50s and the six, early 60s. Mm-hmm. And that was um, that was the red light district, but it was uh, not <laughs> didn't quite, quite uh, reach the level of, of the combat zone. But it had been it had been uh, they used urban renewal funds to basically mow it down and put the Boston City Hall there instead. OK, so it, it was actually physically removed. But, you know, um like they found out that urban planning is is no match for market forces. So that that demand the demand remained, and it just moved down Washington Street ah. to uh, an okay. area which had been the combat zone had been, um, you know, it had some theaters there, so it was perfectly situated. It had been like, you know, vaudeville in its day, and so old theaters. Um, and uh, it was called the combat zone because I think during the fifties that the navy the from the navy yard the the sailors used to come in and in the bars and get into fist fights. So they called it the combat zone. Okay. Um, so all this moved down to the combat zone. So by the 19, so in 1974, I think they finally said, okay, it's, it's got to stay within this four block area. And so they, and they, they allowed it there. And, but, and the idea was it was containment, but it was perceived as license. And the reason it was perceived as license was because Although they made the city made a lot of promises to you know upgrade it and and patrol it and all that stuff, that that never really happened. I mean, mm-hmm. they started to, but it never really happened. And because of the mob moved right in and would own forty percent of it, and they owned so many cops, at least fifty percent. Um, DeGrazia thought that you know there was no there was no policing, so it was quickly out of control. Yikes. Um, and so one of the things that one of the crimes detailed in that report was um, they called them wolf packs. So now this is a this is a four block area where, you know, you buy sex, you buy drinks, uh, you buy drugs uh, and you probably don't want it, any trail of it on a credit card if you had a credit card back then. Mm-hmm. So everybody's carrying a lot of cash. Right. Yeah. So mugging and pickpocketing is a good business to be in. So you have what's called wolf packs. They call them wolf packs. This is when they were being nice. That was the nice term for these okay. young women who uh, who tended to be minority uh, because they were the poorest, who would come and and sometimes one of these women that involved this was like she was sixteen. They're very young, oh, right? Wow. Yeah. And they hang around the outsides of the of the strip clubs, and when the drunk men come out or the drunks come out at two a.m. They sidle up to them, fondle them, and while they're distracting them, steal their wallet. And this report says not only are they doing this, but now they have male protectors who, for a cut of the wallet, are there to protect them in case a guy notices his wallet is stolen. And DeGrazia told me that even he knew some cops who who provided protection for a cut of the wallet. So this is really, like he said, the most the, the, the most disgusting thing about how easily cops were bought was how little at that time, 
they could be bought for five dollars. Wow. You know, it, it never, it's a poor, it's a poor time. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a poor time. And, uh, so that happened, uh, that report hits the presses, the front page of everything. And then they, and then this murder happens, I think was like the next week or a week and a half later. Now, what I find inter- interesting, um, and let's go back to schooling for a second here. You've got some of the poorer schools in the nation they're in Boston, but at the same time, they're some of the most opportunistic schools in the nation because they really are feeder systems for Harvard University. Uh, only just one of them. Just and one of them. Okay. Uh, that's 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 Boston Latin School, mm-hmm. which is still a feeder. It's um, it's like one of the first. I think I think uh, uh, John Hancock went there. Mm-hmm. Like all the a lot of the famous patriots went there. Um, Benjamin Franklin went there for a time. So and it's a uh, you have to you have to test into it. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard, really hard to get into. It's very political about who gets in because it it provides this tremendous opportunity. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so that's who gets in and who doesn't is very controversial. Uh, the Popolo. Andy Popolo uh, got in as, as his younger brother, Danny, who also features large in the school. And Andy got to, you know, worked his tail off and got to Harvard. Yeah. And it's the Harvard football team that descends on the combat zone. Uh, yeah. On this, the night of the murder. And I tell you what, we can, we can get into that here in the second half of the program. I just, I, I find it fascinating that even throughout all this chaos and, and through Everything that's going on in the small city of Boston, there's that uh, there's that little glimmer of hope that you can you can rise above these these small poor stations and get out of it, so to speak. And and we'll talk about that Harvard dynamic here in a second because it's funny that you've got all this not funny, but it's it, funny in an ironic way that you've got racial tensions all throughout Boston, yet when some of these kids make it to Harvard, that racial tension has to go away quickly, especially if you're playing sports. Uh, you know, it, it seems like at that point, even though there may be some tension within the team, as, as, it, as in the book you so eloquently put it, um, they become teammates at that point. When, when yeah. Andrew or Andy is, is on the, his team, on the, on the Harvard football team, you may have black, Italian, Irish members of the team. But at that point, you're all one team. You're right. all sticking up for each other, which is something right. that's not in the mindset of people who are growing up in Boston. No, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a, they, they, you know, I, I truly believe that, you know, that kind of tribalism has to do with exposure. And the more you're exposed to people who are different than you are, the more, the harder it is to be so tribal. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, I think I think I think there was certainly still some racism, um, but Andy and I Andy the the the, the football player who was murdered uh, was special a little, ahead of his time. He he um, he really believed in crossing that divide and and making friends with you know and, and he really mostly he wanted to he felt like an underdog as a, a Italian in an Irish city mm-hmm. and he you know, where the Irish called him a guinea, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to make sure that no one else felt like that. So he really went out of his way to befriend everyone on the team and create, he created bonds both at Boston Latin and in Harvard with, with black friends. 
Before we go to break, let's get to know uh, the Popolo family real quick. Um, now, obviously, his 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 mother and father, actually, his father came over from Italy, correct? Yes, at, at five years old, yeah. And he he fought in the military, or he was in our military? Yeah, no, he was a, a Marine, um, and he was in uh, the Pacific Theater. Okay. And took great pride in that. Took great pride yeah, in the fact and, that and he was... taught the boys that, you know, Semper Fi was really... That loyalty was everything. And I think that my, you know, loyalty was, was important. The boys were loyal to each other. They were loyal to their teammates. And that was a, a, a rallying cry. And the, the mom, um, you know, they grew up in the North End. They're very Italian family, very, you know, um, the father, uh, also Andrew uh, Popolo, he, he went to school with the Angelos, who were the mom. He was front, he was on first plane name basis with them because it's a small, tiny city, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, but that's not the way he wanted to go for his family. They were very, very religious family. And and that kind of I have to say that really um, that really came into play and helped them withstand all that they had to withstand because they would be their faith would be tested yeah. in this story. I, I find and, it interesting, too, that when when Andrew Sr. comes out of the military, he's offered a position in the Angelo family. Yes. And turns it down. Yes. Yes. And, and and then he went living, he would, he, they moved out of the North End when the boys were like 12, I think 12, 14, because, uh, you know, he was offered a corner and he wanted to make sure his, his sons did not end up on any of those corners, you know? Yeah. So he, they, they still, they have, they keep their ties because their, their grandparents are there, the family business is there, but they, they moved to Jamaica Plain out of the North End because he does not want his sons going down that route. Which is quite amazing. I mean, to to you know, come out of come out of the war, maintain the fact that he still wants to be a stand up guy. You know, keep the kids out of the old neighborhood. You know, make sure that they they grow up on the straight and narrow and and do the right thing and and raise them to be upstanding citizens. It, it says a lot about the the character of Andrew Senior. Yeah, he's 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 a very um, he's a very no almost noble and very charming man. Very very uh, humble and. Uh, and, and, and charming man. And that, that plays a role in, in, uh, in the story as well, because initially the media gets behind the family and they're lost, although that will change. Yeah. Um, and there's Andy himself and then Andy has a brother, Danny, correct? Yeah. yeah. And, and Danny, uh, some, one reviewer said Danny is the heart of the story of this book. And it really is because it's hardest. He's 19 when this happens. He loses his brother. They are the two brothers are incredibly close. They're like little, little less than two years apart. Um, they they're so close that when they move to Jamaica Plain, they have to share a bedroom uh, most of their lives. But even when their sister moves out and there's an extra bedroom, they stay and they they share a bedroom. Andy, when he's in Harvard, comes home almost every weekend to spend with the family. Oh wow. They're a very tight Italian family. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a lovely family to grow up in, and and of course Andy sticks to those sticks to those lessons, those morals, everything that he's given from his father as he as he goes to Harvard and is is on the football team. And he actually got some pretty good news as he you know he did, he wasn't quite NFL material obviously when he when he was on the Harvard football team, but got some really great news as he was coming off the the football team and they were about to have this banquet year in banquet 
um, I believe he was going into medical school, right? Yes, yes, he'd been accepted um, by one medical school yeah. already. So he was he was excited. He had a new a new lease on life, a new uh, a new direction in life. So he was quite proud of that and, and and sprung that on his parents. I tell you what, Jen, when we come back, let's get into that fateful night at the combat zone and explain why these Harvard football players were going to the combat zone after their banquet, which happened directly after the banquet. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that fateful night with, uh, with Andy um, and what exactly happened. And we kind of set it up with these wolf packs and, and the fact that uh, the wolf packs enter in, in, into our story. And then we'll talk a little bit about what happened afterwards uh, again, folks, this this book is it's alarming when you when you go back to 1976 and see what happened in this area of Boston and the racial divide, the societal divide, and why it it resulted in murder. It it's uh it's just shocking. The name of the book is The Combat Zone. Murder, Race, and Boston's Struggle for Justice. Our guest is the award-winning author and journalist, Jan Brogan, who wrote this book, and it is an excellent book at that. I recommend you get a copy during the break. We have a link in the description of this program, so you can do so. When we come back, more with Jan Brogan talking about the combat zone right here on The Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is award-winning author and journalist Jan Brogan. She is the author of The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston's Struggle for Justice. We have a link in the description of this program, so you can go ahead and pick up that book. I suggest you do. Uh, Jan, when we left our audience at the uh, last break, we were talking about the Harvard football team. They've had their banquet, uh, year-end banquet. Uh, Andy has... Uh, told his parents that he's he's got a new direction in life. He's not exactly going to the NFL. He doesn't have those kind of skills. Uh, but he's decided that he's he's going to get into medicine and he's going to go for his medical degree. But there's a little tradition that the Harvard football team has, and it involves the combat zone directly after the banquet takes place. You're in football banquet uh, for Harvard. Why don't you tell us what that tradition is? Yeah. So, you know, Harvard is a place of traditions and everything to do with the, They had the last Harvard Yale game is a tradition. The little red flag they wave is a, is a tradition. Everything is tradition oriented. They, they go to the banquet. That's all about the, the, the tradition. And um, Ethel Kennedy is there to give an award in, 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 in her husband's name. It's very Tony. If you ever been inside, inside the Harvard Club, it's gorgeous mm-hmm. in, in, in the back bay. They leave those hallowed halls, and this is tradition. You got to do it. They all do it every year. Forty of the football players go down to the combat zone, the seedy, shady, glittery combat zone, for a last drink together inside the strip club. Now, remember, th- this is in 1976. Drinking age was 18, not 21. Right. That's, that's something you have to remember. Uh, and so, somebody knows somebody. Uh, I think one of the kids on the team. His cousins with the manager, so they get a private room in the back of the Naked Eye, which is probably the most popular strip club for um, college boys, as it features the all-nude college girl review. That's what it's known for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they go in, they have a, they have themselves a good time. They could probably get there around midnight. Uh, they have a couple drinks. A couple of them wind up on the stage dancing with the stripper. The bouncer comes out. They all get kicked out, but that's, you know, it's, it's, it's closing time anyway. Yeah. So they descend on the streets of the combat zone. Now, Andy is with, Andy has actually 
a uh, exam. He's he's pre med. He's got an exam the next day. He's with his, his another and Tom Lincoln is also pre med. So they're trying to get home quick. So they they're actually all the way in a car down down Boylston Street. Another group of football players. These these actually are going home in the Harvard van, equipment van. The Harvard van comes. That's how much of a tradition it is. Okay. The Harvard van brings, brings some kids down, and they're going back with the Harvard equipment manager, and they're past the Carnival Lounge, which is another strip club. And I think it's two or three of these young women, the the um, the wolf pack, and, and these two women are, the two women who approach them are black. Mm-hmm. And it's seven, you know, I think it's, Six football players and the equipment manager, so that's seven total. Uh, the first people, the first of their group are are a couple of black kids, three black kids on the team, mm-hmm. and they say, you know, and they've heard the stories, and you know, it's busing, and they do not want any trouble in Boston with the Boston police. Right. They say, get out of here, right? Yep. A couple of the boys in the back were a little drunker, a little, uh, you know, they start talking to them. The girls wind up going back with them to the Harvard van. Uh, one of them is trying to talk these girls into coming back to the the uh, the campus with them, and the girl gets in. She's on his lap for about five minutes. She jumps out, and they say, "You have your wallet." He doesn't have his wallet. Ooh. So three of the, the 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 white kids, the black kids, are like, "I'm not leaving the van." The white kids jump out. They fought. They fought. They start to chase her. They wind up at one thing leads to another, and. And Aunt, now Andy is in, already in the back of a car ready to go home, mm-hmm. right? He has nothing to do with this. Yeah. But the fight, the, the chase goes past him, though, where he's in the car to the T station. Um, three black men get involved. Um, uh, Edward Soares. Uh, so, so from their perspective, they come out of the uh, carnival lounge and they see, looks like by then, and so the, about seven because they pick up other players, uh, football players, chasing a black woman down the street. Mm-hmm. They get involved in the chase. Uh, Edward Soros. Now, the, the woman actually dropped. The young girl, 16, actually falls. Uh, oh, it's not the young one. It's the old. It's 21. She falls to the ground. The first Harvard football player who, who reaches her, I think Stephen Saxon, picks her up and says, do you have the wallet? And she says, no. And he lets her go. Because he has no way, because he was just kind of brought into this. He, had, he, he was like on the street and he was brought into this. She gets put in a cab. Edward Soros comes and he and he punches them. He kicks his couple of them fall. They get up. Now, this by this point, they're joined by more football players. Right. So Edward Soros winds up against the um, T station surrounded by six or seven white football players. But there's no there's no fist fights going on. Okay. There's no there are no blows exchanged. And uh, uh, Leon um, uh, Leon comes in, and Leon Easterling comes in. He's another black. He's like the oldest. He's forty four. Okay. Uh, uh, Soros is thirty three. Easterling is forty four. He he jumps over the back of some of the other, and he stabs Tom Lincoln in the abdomen. Oh. Yeah. So Tom Lincoln. So, so then the equipment manager says they've got knives run mm-hmm. so all of the football players turn around even tom uh tom lincoln who, who talked to me extensively for this he said he was in shock so he did he said he didn't feel it yeah at the time he run they all run back to the van they get inside except for one uh charlie and 
at this point, Andy Popolo gets out of his car to see what's going on with this. He sees his teammates flying by, being chased by. It's three black guys joined by another man. Uh, they call him the man in the cranberry jack- jacket, mm-hmm. who through testimony is described as white, black, and Hispanic. And who Danny thinks maybe, maybe he was Italian because he's the only one who doesn't get arrested and never gets identified or caught. Yeah. So, uh, but when Andy, when, when Andy comes down, walks down because they're in an alley and he, and he looks out, he sees his teammate, only one of them, everyone else in the van who had been pulled out was being pummeled against the, against the side of the van so hard that the van was shaking. So he goes in to help him. He gets into it with Edward Soros and here he, he, they're just doing some sort of thing. And all of this happens in about five, less than five minutes, right? The whole thing. Mm-hmm. And Leon Easterling comes again and he stabs Andy in the stomach. For, so one of his teammates sees him and picks him up and says, let's get out of here. And they're, they're trying to cross the street when Leon comes after them a second time and stabs this time into the gut and up into his heart. Oh. And at that point, the police descend almost like almost instantly because there had been higher rate of patrol because of the report the week before. So they were trying to uh, improve policing and they get, they take Tom Lincoln. They take, they, they know that they don't have time to wait for an ambulance with, with uh, Andy. So, and, and Tufts medical is like two minutes away. Yeah. So they just put him in the van and drive them. They send Tom Lincoln to uh Mass General Hospital because they ha- they they can wait for an ambulance for him, mm-hmm. uh, and they arrest three men at the site. Leon Easterling. So they arrest Leon Easterling. They also arrest um, Edward Soros, who had been fighting with them. But they also arrest Richard Richard Allen, who is um, he is uh, he is a bouncer at the the Carnival Lounge. Also, he's a low level hustler. Um, he's he's already he's got a huge. Uh, but he didn't do any. He didn't talk. All the only thing he did was tell them, "Go home. Yeah, you're out of your league. Get out of here." Yeah, but that was his message. But so they arrest. They, so they arrest him, and they charge them initially with uh, attempted murder because Andy. So Andy, uh, he, when he, he he arrives at the hospital DOA, oh but they're able to restart his heart. Yeah, and they work on him all night and his his pupils react to light so they're very hopeful mm-hmm. so the next day so the next day and so this 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 is so huge this is harvard it's this story is about harvard it's about boston's racial relations and it's about boston and it's a stupid move to leave in the eyes of the rest of the nation to legalize a combat zone so it gets covered by more than 300 newspapers across the uh, nation and in the stars and stripes in Japan. Yeah. Um, uh, but Danny's in the hospital, you know, with his, with the families in the hospital, they go to leave the next morning and the, the street Harrison, uh, ad is filled with, you know, tr- TV trucks and, and, and newspaper reporters. This is a big, big story. Um, and so the next morning there's a press conference on it with the police. Now this is, remember, this is uh, district one police. Mm-hmm. And to say that they were in need of some good press is an understatement, right? These, this is the, they just a week ago, they were named like their corruption was laid bare. And, and the, and the, the doctors say if it wasn't for the swift thinking and swift acting of the police, this boy would be dead and we think he's going to live her up, right? Right. So it's this kind of feel good story initially. 
And the family is very hopeful, but as soon as they go in to see him the next day, he immediately seizes. And the doctors know, they know then that that's not a good sign. Oh. Um, and they're, they're, he's, he stays in this coma for a, a month. And the, the hospital, the, the, they have their own lounge. It become like every politician visits, uh, psychics come to, I mean, it becomes, it's, it's a, the Pope sends a medal, had a blessed medal. Um, it's, it, it's kind of like a three ring circus, but the family is just holding on with this hope that there was a miracle because he, he rot, he rot, and they think there's going to be another miracle. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's praying for a miracle. You know, there's, there's prayer services in Harvard, all over the, all over the city. But Andy dies in early December. And, um, you know, the family's crushed and, uh, they, the, the prosecutor, Tom money had, had already been in to try to, even before he died to up the, um, up the bail because he knew murder charges were coming. Mm -hmm. So these three black men, um, are charged with murder in the first degree, even though only one of them, you know, they're using something called joint venture, which is a little like the felony murder rule, which says, you know, (laughs) if you knew he had a knife and you fought, if you knew he had a knife, and you followed him to the fight and you helped him, you're just as guilty as he is of murder. Yeah. Yep. And also, um, they're also saying, they're also saying, and not to mention that the three of you were working with that prostitute for a cut of the, for the cut of the wallet. So that's the, that's the prosecutorial argument. This is going on during busing. So, uh, when they impanel the jury, those jurors are coming from primarily the, the, the white neighborhoods, um, that are, feeling most uh, aggrieved. Um, it takes them, I think, two weeks to impanel the jury because during jury selection, you have a lot of people who, you know, when the judge says, you know, with, given your racial views, can you be fair to a black defendant? And they're like, no, nah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, I don't know if they're trying to get out of jury, sir, Judy, or they just really were being honest. They're like, no, nah, I, can't, I can't do that. You know, and and then a lot of it was, you know, have you how much publicity have you heard? And there's the publicity is nonstop on this. Right. So uh, paneling a jury takes a long time. And the, the, the prosecutor, Tom Mundy, who is who is the best prosecutor in the office and will go on to have a very distinguished prosecutor career. Um, in those days, what the prosecutor did, you know, was. The first thing you did on a jury, if you had black defendants, was get rid of any potential black on the jury. And uh, it was there weren't that many blacks in the jury pool to start off with because it's Boston. You only have something like a six, maybe 18 percent population uh, is black. And and the way they the the jury was roles were called was from the um, voter registration and blacks did not register to vote at the same rate as whites. So you tended to have very few blacks in the jury pool, and then they would systematically strike every black juror. And um, uh, Richard Allen's attorney, uh, Henry Owen, is is a black. He's the most prominent black attorney in Boston mm-hmm. at the time, probably through the 70s and 80s. And he's seen this happen before when he's gone against Mundy. So this time, and also the judge, um, uh, he Henry Owens has convinced the judge, Judge Roy, is he's who's called the hanging judge. Mm-hmm. He's brought in whenever the state wants a conviction. Okay. 
and he thinks that uh, Roy is a racist and that his his client has no chance. So he puts his uh, from from the first moment of, of jury selection, he's working on an appeal. And every time Monday strikes a black juror, he notes an exception and calls him out on it. Uh, meanwhile, you know, this is not just I know Boston is the most racist city in the nation, but this is business as usual everywhere. This is totally legal. This goes on in every courthouse uh, in, in the nation. And um, and the defense got rid of any potential juror who had Italian last name. Yeah. Yep. On the theory, they'd be too uh, sympathetic to the victim. Mm-hmm. So this is the way business is done. It's totally it's held up by precedent at the time. And that's what they do. They uh, so the final jury, they do have one black on the juror jury and he's the foreman and uh, they they go to trial. Hmm. Which it sounds like an incredibly exhausting process in order to try and get jurors. I mean, and, and, and having and we kind of we kind of summarized it here. But when you read it in the book, the fact that. They keep striking down black jurors on the prosecutorial side. On the defendant's side, they're trying to get rid of as many Italian jurors or potential jurors as possible. It took what? I think the, the, the figure was there was 185 potential jurors that they could pick out of just to get the 15 potential, 12 permanent and three alternates or four alternates. Well, they're supposed to get 16. 16 they're supposed to have right. four alternates, but they give up because they can't. So they yeah. do it with three alternates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, it's just this arduous process to try and get what they can get. And at one point, doesn't the defense try to knock the trial back to October because they're, they're just saying this is impossible or let's try to get a venue change. And they're, they're trying all these different things to try and get as much of a fair trial for their side on the defense as possible, knowing that they're probably facing an uphill battle. Well, the other thing is Andy died in December. Yeah. This goes to trial that March, three months later. Yeah. That's unheard of today. Like after a murder, it's like, it's like, so that gives the defense three months to prepare. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not, it's not a lot of time and, no. and it's still too hot, you know, like it, it's still too in the air. And yeah. when they're trying this, when they're trying this, there's all this. So at the same time, all this investigation is coming out about the combat zone. Um, so, because right after this, there's a big clampdown, and and the district attorney had been investigating the combat zone at the time, so every strip club is being brought to having board hearings. They're, they're losing their license, losing their permits. They're they're being charged with corruption. This is in the news every day. So and and then and they're saying the combat zone where Andy Pablo was murdered, where the Harvard football player was murdered. So it's in the news every day. Mm-hmm. Um, impacting the trial and and in fact the jury will will convict uh will convict all three and it's a very complicated case it's usually very it's usually hard to get a jury uh like a murder conviction is the hardest conviction to get because you're putting someone away for life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the and and no parole in in massachusetts and so you're asking you're asking the jury to put people to prison for life without parole who didn't actually do the murder. They just, you know, they, they just provided support using joint venture. One of them who didn't even touch anybody and was telling them to go home. So, um, so, but, so they end deliberations. I think they end the, 
the court at like noon, the jury gets sent out for deliberations at one. They break, you know, after dinner, they're sequestered. They, they, so that's what, four hours? The next morning, 20 minutes, they have a jury and they're all convicted of murder in the first degree. Yeah. Now, it was a very complicated, now the prosecutor really had excellent evidence. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of, the medical evidence alone was very damning for, for Leon Easterling. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a lot of evidence that, that Leon Easterling had murdered them. They had a lot of evidence that, you know, when, when the, when the, when the blacks chased them down the street, they became the aggressors, but they didn't have in that first, I don't, I didn't think, and I read the transcripts three times. They didn't have a lot of solid evidence of, of, well, they had evidence of joint venture and that they followed him, but they didn't have a lot of the other, cause they were also arguing the three black men were working to protect you know, in a conspiracy to protect the the uh, prostitutes. They didn't have a lot of evidence about that. But they all get convicted. And uh, when that conviction happens, all of a sudden, the media sentiment switches. And it goes from being sympathy for the Popolos to this is harsh justice. You know, this is really, and, and, the, t- and it, it, the, the tide turns. And Andy is uh, Danny is at, at at Boston College, and he says he remembers, you know, he'd be trying to go to school, and he's of course still so, still so traumatized by this. And he said he could see he could see people look always look at him like, is that the Pompolo? You know, and it, it was, and it, and he felt like that rate in that racist trial, you know. So it's no longer sympathy for his brother and what his brother went through, but that racist trial, um, and. There are a couple of things that happened after this trial that also changed the sentiment. Um, so I should say right off the bat, Henry Owens appeals immediately, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He appeals and the defense appeal immediately. Uh, and, um, but there are a couple of other things that happen. You know, Boston, you know, it's a lot of violence. Uh, so they're trying to, and it's a lot of, at the time, statistically, it's a lot of white on black violence. It's something like, you know, there's violence both ways. There is no question there is violence both ways. But statistically, I think that um, uh, the, the feds come out with a statistic that say it's 60 percent white on black. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what happens is uh, you have a trial of, of Brian Nelson as a young black kid who's murdered. He's he's like 18 years old, a bunch of white kids in a van uh, and three black kids in a car get into it. And uh, they, you know, they, it's during something with snow is involved. They spin out, they get into a fight. Um, and Brian Nelson gets murdered uh, with a, I think a tire iron and a Coke bottle. Mm-hmm. And um, so not only are none of the people he's with charged, you know, none of the other white kids are charged at using joint venture. But he's only charged with manslaughter because it's a fight, not murder. Yeah. And and he'll be he'll be uh, he'll be found innocent. So despite a lot of testimony, including one of his own white kids who testified against him. So friends, so um, justice just doesn't seem very fair. Uh, there's also an instance where um, a a uh, school from. This is really sad. A, a school from uh, Pennsylvania of, of black black kids come up uh, for a uh, field trip to see the Bunker Hill Monument, mm-hmm. and uh, the adults with them get attacked by three white kids with a tire with baseball bats and hockey sticks, Jeez. and they get they arrest three white guys and they they are found innocent, uh, or they're not convicted. 
Um, and there's a belief there that um, they actually got the wrong guys, but they, the police work was rigged. So there's this feeling that, you know, only only whites get, uh, only blacks get uh, get convicted. And there's also a Boston Globe uh, spotlight series, which shows that a statistically um, blacks go to uh, jail for, they get harsher prison sentences and they, they stay in jail longer and to the worst prisons mm-hmm. than whites who do the same thing. So all this is kind of hitting the press Yeah. Uh, by the time the second trial will roll around. My God. Jan, I have to ask you, when you feature all this in the book, and I realize it's important to shine a light on, on some of these cases and to show exactly in this right, correct framing who gets the injustice here and who doesn't. But in that, we can when we look back in the clear frame of history to see who exactly was done wrong and who was done right, what is it you're hoping to accomplish by by showing people through that correct lens? What is it that, that you're hoping to clear up? Um, so, what, well, there are a couple of things. I, I wanted, so in Boston, even mm-hmm. when I was doing the research, people would say, Oh, Andy Pablo, he's that he's that Harvard football player who was chasing the prostitute who stole his wallet to get it back. Who was in the, who was in the in the uh, in the combat zone to to get sex that night. So I wanted to clear up the story that he was a completely innocent victim on this. Okay. In this. Okay. So that was one thing that was that was that who I, and I also wanted to show, um, but I wanted to show you know to me and so through my, most of this story, which I don't mention. Um, there's this whole revenge thing that, you know, the family knows, like the mob offers the family to, to get revenge for them. Okay. And Danny is obsessed with this idea that it's his job to get revenge. Um, so I wanted to show how the family, you know, put their trust in the criminal justice system instead and had to live with the results, but that they took the high road. Okay. So there was, there, there was that. And, and also I think that this story becomes a metaphor for Boston itself. Like Danny is almost a metaphor for Boston in itself in that that's what Boston was like in those days, that tribal Boston and, and Danny evolves and the city evolves because okay. uh, it also goes into what happens after this trial, you know, Ray Flynn comes in the corrections that are made mm-hmm. and that yes, there is still a long way to go, but we came from a very, very, low place. So I, I wanted to show that things and, and the other thing is this this trial changes criminal justice. Okay. That was the main thing. That's why I thought the story had legs because because of this appeal, it 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 the, they say you can't do this anymore. It's called the Soros decision. Mm-hmm. And it started in Boston and California and it said you can't, you know, you can't strike women off the jury because it's a rape trial. Yep. Right? You can't strike, uh, you know, gays off the gays off the jury uh, if if it's if if you know the, if the victim is gay. You know, you cannot you can't strike blacks. You can't strike any defined group. Um, and the way they monitor at this is, you know, when you strike a couple people, the other attorney starts keeping keeping numbers and cases where they did they get appealed and and they they lose them. Mm-hmm. So and it's called the Soros decision and it changes criminal. It starts in Boston, Massachusetts. It eventually takes. So, you know, Boston is so bad, right? We're so we're so racist, but we have the most activist uh, criminal justice system in the nation. It leads the way. And the other states 
oh, they're activists. They're too progressive. They don't they don't do it for a while. But finally gets to the U.S. Supreme Court in the Babson decision. Uh, I think it's eight years later. And the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do this. So it changes the way juries are chosen forever. Okay. Although I have to say in Massachusetts, the Soros decision and because of a couple of refinements, it works better than it works in the rest of the nation. Like the the, the Babson decision prosecute, they people find ways. There's like YouTube's on how to get around it. Mm-hmm. But um, in Boston, because, you know, they can lie, so they give other reasons and stuff. But in Boston, because of that, the Soros decision, the way it was written and a few other refinements, we really improved criminal justice for, for everybody. So, uh, so I wanted to show, you know, all we talk about are how bad things are, right? how bad things are and how much far, how much farther we have to go. And it's true. We do. You could always have further to go, but if you don't look back and see how bad and see that you can change you, how can you believe in change? Absolutely. And that's, that's perfect. That's, that's a perfect answer. And really what, what I was hoping you would say, um, I want to play a little what if game with you, Jan. Uh, just for a second, what happens if Danny does take the Angelo family's offer? W- where do you see things going? Do th- do we do we get as much progress in the in the story as we've gotten, or do you think Danny does get the satiation he's looking for? And do things turn out better than what they were? No, I you know I I don't I don't think I well one thing for a lot of the data I've studied like a lot of the post traumatic stress from when when. When you when you have a loved one who is murdered, mm-hmm. or a murder damages the damage is so deep, and it's and it's and it's particularly for a nineteen year old younger brother, there is no coming back from that unless you have like outside of maybe some very serious therapy. Mm-hmm. So I don't think a criminal justice system can or or a if Dan if, if Danny had done that, or if they had had those guys whacked in prison, I think Danny would have been worse off. Because I don't think he could have lived with himself. Uh, because he is a very religious guy, mm-hmm. um, and it's a very religious family, and I don't. And he, he, he I, I don't, I don't, I don't think he could live with that murder. I mean, maybe he could. Maybe that's me being by naive. But I don't think it would have. Nothing makes it better, you know. Nothing makes losing your brother. I, I lost a brother when I was nothing, and it wasn't a murder. But nothing makes that better. Just time makes it easier. Yeah. But I don't think that would have made it better. And um, that's the family. How about the criminal justice system? So the criminal justice system eventually, I think, would have come round to this with juries. It would have just taken more trials to get there, to make the changes necessary in jury selection. True. And then not to mention Danny's got that debt then to the Angulo family. And, and yeah. you know, and, and how does that play out over the years? Yeah. No, it's... it's um. You, you could have mur- murdered them all, I guess, but the appeal, st- I think what would happen, the appeal still would have stood, mm-hmm. you know, even if they'd been murdered in prison, their, their convictions would have been, uh, uh, invalidated. And, uh, the, the new, the Soros decision would have stuck. So they would have had to change trial with juries are chosen. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's interesting stuff, I tell you, Jan, uh, and, and a wonderful book. Uh, you really have put out yeah. a, a wonderful book that shows not only what the times were in 1976 compared to where they are now, but just the just where everything was in that time period and, and really brings people to a, a time period where they can say, wow, you know, 
we have come a long way, uh, yeah. one, but two, there is so much more we can do. And it gives yeah. us a, a real reference point as to, as to where we can, we can improve. Um, the name of the book, The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston Struggle for Justice. Uh, again, folks, I, I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with this book and, and really getting my, my head wrapped around it. And just, you know, you, you have to sit down and tell yourself, this was a real event. These were real events. This is not a work of fiction. It's, it's, it's true crime and, and true events. And somebody lost their life over, over something such as this. And yeah, people acted like this. This was, this is not, this is not a, a step to the left or an imaginary story. It's, it's all real. And it, it uh, shocks you. It truly shocks I, I mean, you. I, I think the, the, the hardest thing for me is I think that if the, if the prosecutor who really was, I mean, I think he was under pressure, but I, I think if he had just prosecuted Leon Easterling for murder in the first degree, mm-hmm. just him, Maybe Suarez for assault and battery mm-hmm. going out instead of overreaching. Yeah. I think it would have been a lot easier on the family. I think it would have been a lot fairer yeah. going in. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I encourage you folks to to get the rest of the story to to pick up the book and, and find out for yourself. It's well, well worth it. Again, the book, The Combat Zone, Murder, Race, and Boston Struggle for Justice. We have a link in the description of this program. Go get the book. Read the story for yourself. And uh, get ready to be astounded. It is it is quite a great book. Jan Brogan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Folks, it's time now for us to lighten things up just a bit. It's time for us to bring in Beer City Bruiser, and it's time now for Dumb Crimes. It's stupid criminal. It's, it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christ Bearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? Uh, and what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time y'all look forward to. It is time for Dumb Crimes, Stupid Criminals as we lighten things up a little bit. And as we do that, we bring in a co-host fresh from the Big Easy. He is the co-host with the most... The BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, Beer City Bruiser. Bruiser, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing fantastic, Cruiser. Uh, happy report, safe and sound back in uh, good old North Kekalaki. Mm. Um, had a great time in New Orleans, a little bit hot. We had uh, we got to see their, their, the first time they said in two years they had a real down, heavy downpour. Really? It was so bad, the manhole covers were starting to come up. Really? Yeah, we got to find out what below sea level really is for from a thunderstorm. It was only the first day. So it didn't ruin anything that we did. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, because we th- that day we did a tour of a of a mansion and one of the oldest mansions, which is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that night we we're doing a true crime tour, and we're like, oh no, because the true crime tour was rain or shine. They don't. Oh. They don't care. Okay. But huh. thank God the weather let up, and we yeah. got to do the true crime. And the true crime tour was probably my favorite tour. Nice. Of the whole vacation. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll get some more details tomorrow on that. Uh, and, yeah. And anxious to hear about that. Uh, also, tomorrow, folks, on the show, just looking ahead. Yes, Ziggy's Picks is back. And we've <laughs> added a cast member. We'll tell you about that tomorrow as well. Uh, if you want a sneak peek, you can go to darknessradioshow.com. Uh, and you can find out how we're doing <laughs> this week. <laughs> we're not doing so no well. week one of the nfl which is just screwy and yes i'm still screaming at kirk cousins for those of you who want to know 
Just I love in the chat. Me. They had to check on you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad somebody checked on me because I damn near had a stroke yesterday. So. Yeah, that was that was not a good game. Um, so dumb crime, stupid criminals. Boy, have we got stories for you. A couple out of Minnesota here today. Oh, okay. That's yeah. unusual. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm beginning to think that one parents don't know how to raise their children anymore. I agree with that. Uh, Especially here in this state uh, that you're going to find out about that today. Um, And we're going to start it off, Bruiser, believe it or not. Oh. With an AI story from a listener. So we're going nightmare fuel on dumb crime, stupid criminals. That's right. Dumb crime, stupid technology is what we can label this one. Okay. (laughs) That's right. A criminal enterprise flaunts AI in a creepy fraud for hire commercial meant for the dark web. Okay. Yeah. Wait, you can... (laughs) A commercial, huh? A commercial. A criminologist recently unearthed a video of a multi-billion dollar transnational criminal organization that has been stealing from the U.S. government since the pandemic and selling generative artificial intelligence tools to other criminals. Okay, I guess that's a lucrative criminal enterprise. (laughs) I would think so. Uh, The 58-second clip, which was meant for the dark web, opens with a person who goes by Sanchez, not Dirty Sanchez, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Covered head-to-toe in black clothing and speaking behind a black skeleton mask, with someone else who appears to be digging a grave behind him. Ooh, we've, we've got elements here. We've got production elements. I was going to say, they actually like took time to like storyboard this out, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. It took, it took a little bit of time to put this together. Yes, I sell Chase bank accounts. Yes, I am one of the first people to sell fake bank accounts. Four years ago, the man who calls himself Sanchez said, we started with my partner four years ago. Now we are about 30 people in one office. Well, growth is important too. That is, that is. That yeah. means our criminal enterprise is growing. That's right. As he speaks, the camera shifts from a face-to-face point of view with Sanchez. I just love <laughs> saying his name. Uh, to one looking up from what appears to be a hole with ominous music in the background. So he just kind of pops his head up like a gopher. <laughs> like, hey, are you interested in some bank accounts? <laughs> The video was uncovered by David Maimon, a criminologist and professor at Georgia State University, who provided context to the video in a LinkedIn post. This was an update to some of his concerned customers who haven't seen him on the online underground market for a few weeks. Maimon went on to say... Uh, These groups are behind most of the pandemic fraud that cost the country billions and are now using generative AI to remain hidden while expanding their criminal empire. Haywood Talcove, CEO of LexisNexis Risk Solutions Government Group, told Fox News Digital. When you think of pandemic fraud and modern day cyber criminal fraud targeting the government, you usually think of low level fraudsters acting alone. He used the example of someone submitting a dozen unemployment applications with stolen identities during the pandemic. In reality, those who commit government fraud and get caught are the tip of the iceberg, Telcove said. They're like the street-level drug dealers who get arrested. There's a whole machine behind them that, at this point, closely resembles the 20th century Italian mob or modern-day drug cartels, he went on to say. On the dark web, there is a fraud-as-a-service industry run by international cyber gangs from all over the world, including Russia, Nigeria, and China, among dozens of others. The one depicted in the video is called Mega Darknet Market. (laughs) 
That that kind of sounds like something the Japanese came up with in manga. I was going to say, that sounds like a Godzilla company. It does. Like, it's Godzilla destroying the mega dark net company. That's right. Mega dark net market, uh, which Telcove said is one of the biggest enterprises in the world. The video gave the first glimpse into how these organizations sell mule accounts, which is a bank account set up with a stolen identity, as well as a generative AI and deep fake tools to other criminals, which uh, Talcove went on to say. Uh, this video is proof of what I've been saying. There are that there are some very organized institutions empowering low level fraudsters from all over the world. These international criminal enterprises rose to prominence during the pandemic and stole hundreds of millions, Telcove also went on to say. Uh, however, that is a drop in the bucket to the $1 trillion or more that these groups can steal from the U.S. government over the next year using artificial intelligence. Oh, geez. $1 trillion, bruiser. That is a lot. Being a good guy doesn't pay. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and you know what? Now they have acting jobs, too. Yeah, 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 Sanchez. <laughs> yeah, Sanchez is now in his own video. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> that is just fraud, Telcove went on to say. These international enterprises are arming other criminals across the globe with AI tech and tools that execute sextortion scams. I use the word sextortion scams. That's a word. Sextortion. I've never heard that word. Yep. Which generally target preteens to young adults and have led to suicides. So in other words, if they take a naked selfie, they grab that selfie off the net or off the off the web or dark web, and then they turn it around and blackmail them for it. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've gotten a few messages, not my nude photos because I don't have any, but is this your friend or family member? It's like, I don't know. It's a wiener. <laughs> I don't look at yeah. my friends or family members' wieners, so I don't know. You're like, dude, it's a wiener or something? <laughs> uh, this is very, a very important trend that has largely gone unnoticed, Talcove said. The pandemic prompted a transformation of America's criminals and gangs from gun running and drug dealing to unemployment fraud, SNAP fraud, and PPP fraud. Uh, those on the front lines doing the dirty work can take or make millions rather. They take it as well. Uh, the fraud is the service organizations that give these criminals the tools, data and means to do so are making far more than that. Well, OK, so you obviously found a video, so it's not like they're super sneaky. Why don't we shut them down? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Well, finding it is one thing. Shutting them down is another. The dark web isn't like just you're able to go on Google and access it. Well, I, I know that. I know. Yeah. But but this this guy here is, is making it sound like like I know it's a it's a dark thing. And I know identity theft is a big thing and all that. But like he's he's not telling us exactly what they're doing to combat it. You know what I mean? Right. He's just telling us to watch out to not not put our nude pics online and be you know what you should never do and you should be wary of your bank account and all that but like come on sanchez has got enough money here that he's able to make a commercial a 58 <laughs> second commercial now to give you an but, idea bruiser as far as sextortion goes yeah uh, i'll give you a little they, they do have a little background on the whole sextortion ring 
Uh, the FBI has described sextortion as a crime that involves coercing victims into providing sexually explicit photos or videos of themselves and then threatening to share them publicly or with the victim's family and friends. So malicious actors use content manipulation tech, uh, technologies and services to exploit photos and videos, typically captured from an individual's social media account, open internet, or requested from the victim into sexually themed images that appear true to life in likeness to a victim, then circulate them on social media, public forums, or pornographic websites. Many victims, which have included mirrors, are unaware their images are copied, manipulated, and circulated until it was brought to their attention by someone else. At least a dozen sextortion-related suicides have been reported across the country, according to the latest FBI numbers from this year. Many victims are males between the age of 10 and 17, although there have been victims as young as 7, according to the FBI. I can't believe there's people out there that want naked pictures of a seven-year-old yeah. to extort their family. Girl, like, girls have also what kind been, of idiot, you know what I mean? What kind of monster would do that? They're out there and they, they make a lot of money with it. Girls have also been targeted, but the statistics show a higher number of boys have been victimized. Yeah, because boys are easier manipulated. Like, if a girl starts talking to them and... I'm sure they're sharing photos too, mm-hmm. not of themselves, but of something they stole from somebody. So the boy's like, oh, I'm getting boob pictures. Cool. I'll send a dick pic. And then once they have that, now they can start their, yep. their extortion. Yep. Absolutely. It's a, it's a new version of um, sex trafficking or human trafficking. It's just you don't have the actual physical human and you have yep. the digital humans. You have the digital human. And then at that point, you own them. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, this story is quite shocking. You you pretty much put yourself behind the eight ball as a defendant in a court case when you knock your lawyer out. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah. Uh, we're going to San Jose, California, where an attack in a courtroom shocks an entire murder trial. A murder trial took a sudden and violent turn when the defendant, Ronnell Spencer, attacked his own attorney in a San Jose courtroom just moments before the opening statements were scheduled to begin. Spencer, facing charges related to a deadly 2022 shooting in San Jose, assaulted his Santa Clara County deputy public defender without warning. Right before opening statements, too, so you don't even know if they're a good lawyer or not. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah, I'm sick of your shit. <laughs> right. And that makes you look horrible as a defendant. I'm sorry. Oh, it does. It yeah. does. Yeah. Like you're not even giving that guy a chance to show he's a decent lawyer. Right. Court bailiffs and a prosecutor quickly intervened to subdue Spencer and separate him from his attorney. Fortunately, the attorney was not seriously injured in the attack. The county public defender's office declined to comment on the reported assault. As a result of the assault, there will be a charge, or, I'm sorry, a change in legal representation for Spencer. I would hope so. I would hope so, too. Yeah. An identification of counsel hearing was scheduled where the county public defender's office was expected to declare a conflict due to the encounter. This change is likely to cause a significant delay in the murder trial as the new attorney will need time to review the case and prepare a defense. So this guy just found a way to prolong his trial. Just keep attacking his, his lawyer. That's right. Just keep tagging him and then, you know, add 30 to 60 days. How many public, because you're, you're by law, mm-hmm. your, your rights are, if you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. Right. How many appoint, court-appointed attorneys do you have to punch before they just stop giving you attorneys? That's a good question. Because I don't think that office is going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, Jim, see what happened to Paul yesterday? Cool. You get to take this case now. Well, I think eventually they have to bring a, a court-appointed attorney from different uh, jurisdiction in. 
you'd think, right? Yeah. And then at that point, they assign probably some sort of, I don't, I don't know, I'm not saying this from experience, but I got to think that they assign some sort of CEO or someone to the attorney so that you're never alone with him, so that there's some yeah. sort of protection. Yeah. That makes sense, too. I never thought yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, they keep somebody in there to, to protect them. Right. This isn't helping his murder case, either. Like, no. you're throwing, you're, you're showing violent tendencies before it even happens to somebody that's supposed to be helping you. Well, and I wonder if they have to excuse the jury pool and pick a new jury pool, because now they've been tainted. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it has to start all over. Yeah. Uh, it has not yet been determined whether Spencer will face additional prosecution for the attack. The county district attorney's office stated that they would make a charging decision after reviewing reports from the sheriff's office, uh, which concluded the investigation. At the time of the reported assault, Spencer was not restrained, as is customary for defendants at trial, to avoid prejudicing the jury. It is unclear whether security practices for Spencer will change in light of the incident. I think it will. I think it will, too, yeah. because you got to think about some of the most notorious serial killers. They all come in chained. Yes. Uh, Ronell Spencer, a Chicago resident, has been in jail custody for over a year in connection with the fatal shooting of 27-year-old Antioch resident Jackie Amir Biggins on March 27th, 2022, near 4th and San Carlos Streets across from San Jose State University. Uh, this shooting gained notoriety because it occurred near the site of a controversial San Jose police shooting that took place less than an hour later. In the subsequent police shooting incident, Oakland resident Con Green uh, was wounded by an officer after patrons reported a fight and a gun sighting near at a nearby uh, Takiera. Green and his attorneys claim he was shot after disarming a man during a brawl he did not initiate, and they have filed a lawsuit against the city and police department. So okay. There you go. Interesting stuff. Yeah, it is very interesting. Now that the two had no relation, right? The two, no. the, sh the officer shooting and then no. this murder. No, nope. just happened in the same spot it, within an hour of of each pure other. Pure coincidence. Okay. Yeah, pure coincidence. Yeah. Uh, we move on. This sent into us by a listener as well. By the way, if you have stories for dumb crime, stupid criminals, just send them to Tim at darknessradio.com. We enjoy it. We enjoy the heck out of it when you send us stories. This one is unusual, Bruiser. <laughs> Even I read this one and I had to chuckle. Although it's not really a chuckling matter, you'll get a good chuckle out of it. Okay. Okay. Um, this one, uh, police rush to reports of a ritual mass murder, but find out it was just a yoga class. <laughs> Sometimes people, you know, I, I've done some hot yoga where it felt like a ritual murder. <laughs> yeah, where it felt like ritual torture or murder. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've done the, the giant DDP yoga, and yeah. and I wasn't in shape, and I felt like, okay, yep, I'm dying now. This mm -hmm. is where I die. And I look over, and there's another guy my age, my weight. He's dying too. I'm like, good, we're going together, brother. <laughs> <laughs> if we go, we go together. Well, when a yoga teacher turned out the lights towards the end of one of her classes in Britain this past week, her hope was to encourage peaceful relaxation, right? Which makes sense. Sure. Namaste. <laughs> Namaste. <laughs> now you must stay on the floor while the police come in and figure this thing out. Uh, what followed could not have been further from her intention. Soon after the class was over, a mass of police sirens shattered the peace as officers raced toward the venue where the class was being held. They were reporting to a call from a member of the public worried that there had been a mass killing at the studio in the small English coastal resort of Chapel St. Leonard's. 
uh, Millie Laws, who runs Unity Yoga, was teaching the class at the North Sea Observatory in the village, which also doubles as a community space, art gallery, and exercise studio. Seascape Cafe at the observatory described the incident on Wednesday evening of last week in a Facebook post, writing, If anyone heard the mass of police sirens in Chapel St. Leonard's at 9.30 p.m. last night, then please be reassured. They were on their way to the observatory after someone had reported a mass killing in our building, having seen several people lying on the floor. <laughs> so I'm assuming they're all doing dead man's pose, which is how you sometimes end a yoga session. And that's just where you lay flat on your back, palms up, feet wide, and you just breathe. And it's just, it's supposed to relax you and get all the bad energy out. Mm-hmm. But I don't get why someone would be walking past and look in the room and go, oh, my God, they're all dead. <laughs> Quick, call 911. <laughs> somebody just being a little too nosy, I'm sure. I think so. Yeah. I think somebody watches a little bit too much true crime programs. Well, you know what it is? The candles laid out on the floor could have been a ritual mass murder. Yeah. See, somebody was laying out candles and then sacrificing them to the devil. Come on, bruiser. It all <laughs> See, makes the sense. problem was. They were leaving that Jim Jones documentary. Yeah. Going home. And they just saw the Jim Jones documentary. Yeah. Went past the yoga studio and went, oh, oh my gosh. And then you know how they keep that cooler of water in the corner? That could have been filled with Kool-Aid. See what it, it all makes sense. It does. It does. Uh, yeah. It was Flavor-Aid, by the way, not Kool-Aid. Oh, Flavor-Aid, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to give Kool-Aid a bad name, do we? <laughs> Uh, so she went on to say, uh, having seen several people laying on the floor, which actually turned out to be the yoga class and meditation. That's how she ended the, uh, the, the post. Dear general public, please be mindful that the observatory has lots of yoga classes. She went on to say happening in the evenings. We are not part of any mad cult or crazy clubs. That's how the post continued in a separate Facebook post on the unity yoga page. Laws said that the claw, a call to police was triggered after some local dog walkers mistook the scene for a ritual mass murder. In a phone call to CNN on Friday, Laws said that five police cars showed up at the venue soon after she and the seven other class participants had left. She was told about the episode in a phone call from the venue manager. I was very shocked, she said. It was so surreal, and I didn't quite believe it was true. I've spoken to most of the people who took part, and they have just said how mad it is. Uh, they were all—they're all alive, so don't worry. Yeah, they're yeah. all alive. <laughs> yeah, everyone's still alive, although a few of them have some weird stomach issues and feel sickly all the time. Maybe the flavor aid was poisoned. Maybe yeah, you never know. know. Uh, they were all participating in a beautiful, deep relaxation, just as Bruiser said, and it could have never run through any of our minds that it could have <laughs> that it could be taken in this way. Uh, police confirmed the incident in a statement emailed to CNN last week. It read, a call was made following concerns for the occupants of the North Sea Observatory at Chapel St. Leonard's. Officers attended and were happy to report everyone was safe and well. The call was made with good intentions. So there you go. And the officers all left fully stretched out, ready to take on the day. Brand new chakra, new energy because they took the class. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yep. Uh, the next two stories, Bruiser, are representative of sometimes when you point a gun, you don't do it for the right reasons. That's 90% of the time when you point a gun, it's not for the right reasons, <laughs> at least on this show. Or or you're pointing it for a mistaken reason. Okay. Kind of a whoops, whoopsie, maybe I went a little too far type deal. You know? Okay. 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 We'll start out first in Florida. That figures. 
<clears throat> yeah, why not? Yeah. Where a man was arrested for pointing a gun at three Palmetto Ridge high school students. Well, they're on his lawn. <gasps> no, that's the second story. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. we're going, okay, I gotcha, yeah, yeah. gotcha. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, three students from Palmetto Ridge High School reported that a man pointed a gun at them after he drove his truck at their vehicle and forced them into a dead-end street. What? Okay, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> Let the teenagers be teenagers. Well, he was kind of acting like a teenager himself. He was acting like a dick. Except he was 40 years old. <laughs> 40-year-old, highly triggered Armando Maciotti was arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and intent to kill. According to the Collier County Sheriff's Office, the three juveniles were in their car driving to school when a large white pickup truck approached them aggressively. The student driver stopped the vehicle and began backing up. The truck continued aggressively moving forward until the student had to stop the vehicle due to a canal right behind them. The suspect then allegedly pointed a gun out the driver's side window. He yelled and cursed at the students, ordering them not to move and stay in the car. The suspect exited his vehicle and approached the students, still holding the handgun. He repeatedly pointed the gun at them as he continued to yell and curse. One of the students rolled down the window and recognized Massiotti as his neighbor. <laughs> Right? Massiotti said something along the lines of, oh, my bad, bro. Oh, oh come on. <laughs> <laughs> right? Come so he chased him down, went bumper to bumper, basically pushing him into a canal, gets out, threatens all of them, sees it's his neighbor and goes, oh, what's up, man? I got your mail from yesterday. Yeah. You're good. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no worries. Sorry. <laughs> my bad. My bad, bro. Uh, let me go put this away. Yeah. H have a good day at school. Don't forget to tell your dad. I was just looking out for you. Yeah. Make sure he returns my weed whacker. Thank yep. you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, then Massiotti entered his truck and drove away. Massiotti is currently at Naples jail. There's a shock. <laughs> w I N K the wink news uh, spoke with a neighbor who said he was give some ass journalism. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a wink with one eye. The brown eye. Uh, Wink News spoke with a neighbor who said he was shocked to hear about Massiotti. He said Massiotti's always been a good neighbor. Uh, two of the three teens' families have said they plan to press charges. Well, and he technically is still a good neighbor. He, he was threatening until he realized it was a neighbor's kid and went, oh, okay, cool, my bad. So technically, <laughs> he's still a good neighbor. <laughs> well, he ain't no state farm, I'll tell you that. There's no, they didn't give a reason why he did this. He just decided to screw with three no, high yeah, school kids. Yeah, huh? he, he, he mistaken identity. He must have thought that ah, it was, ah. yeah, it must have been the neighbor who borrowed uh, the weed whacker from the neighbor <laughs> that he borrowed the weed whacker from and never returned it. So Got it. Gotcha. Gotcha. He's like, sorry, Steve. I'll see you next week. That's Still on for the block party? Cool. Yeah, yeah good, good. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna barbecue out on uh, on Sunday. We're gonna watch uh, watch the Buccaneers, right? Beat the Vikings. Yeah, <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, we continue to stay in Miami, or okay, not okay. Miami, but Florida. We're going to Fort Myers. Um, Beautiful retirement community. Yeah, where again, it's crucial to have a gun in case someone steps on your lawn. <laughs> Again, beautiful retirement community. <laughs> yes, Fort Myers, beautiful retirement community. It's where the twins play spring ball. Uh, Fort Myers man was arrested after pointing his gun at construction workers. Let's <laughs> <laughs> so let them do their job, man. Uh, the Lee County Sheriff's Office arrested a man after he pointed a gun at two construction workers out of fear that they would ruin the grass on his lawn. 
it took a good long while to get that grass that way, Bruiser. But the thing is, they'll replace it. Like when they were doing construction across from the house, they ripped up my yard a little bit, but they replaced it completely. Like it looks better now. Like I wish I had ripped up the rest of my lawn. But only because you had your gun out, right? <laughs> yes, uh, my gun being Ziggy. <laughs> yes, your gun being Ziggy. Uh, the incident happened around 9 p.m. last Thursday night at 1050 Southtown and River Drive in the McGregor area of Fort Myers. Two construction workers were leaving work for the night, attaching their trailer to their truck. That's when they said a man walked outside his home and pointed a gun at them because he was afraid they were going to ruin his grass. <laughs> Hank Hill, calm down. That's right. <laughs> A report from LCSO said that 62-year-old Timothy DeMars told deputies that he would shoot the construction workers if they ruined his grass. It's not that serious. It, yeah, yeah, it's grass. Like I said, they replace it. Maybe you should go out and touch that grass every once in a while, Timothy. You'd be just fine. No, he does. He, he has the best lawn in his neighborhood. He goes out. He brushes it. He combs it. He makes sweet, sweet love to it. <laughs> His lawn he is everything. A, he finds a little hole in the lawn and makes love to it. it. Yeah. yeah. He, he's like, you know what? This is my lawn. So you ask him about his wife, she'll be like, oh, she's cooking dinner. But you ask him about his lawn, it's a three-hour story of how great it is. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, deputies found the gun he allegedly pointed at the men on a shelf in his garage, and it was loaded. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Deputies arrest. It's not like anybody can break in there and take it. No, no. Uh, deputies, they, they don't dare. They don't dare come out on his lawn. Why would they come <laughs> in his garage? Knows, you don't go on that guy's lawn. <laughs> yeah. Deputies arrested DeMars, and he's facing charges of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon without intent to kill. He has since bonded out of jail. DeMars' neighbors are shocked. Things escalated that quickly. Uh, one of his neighbors, Carl Mor Mor Morin or Moran, says... That is unfortunate and completely out of character with this whole area. It's a very quiet area, very peaceful. Everyone seems to have a really short fuse lately. So, I mean, it doesn't take much to get people stressed out. Paula Kiker is another neighbor who said, I've seen him out in the yard and whatnot, never really said anything. Uh, just definitely didn't want to bother him. He's that type. Everybody on the street really got hurt bad by Ian, which is, a, you know, hurricane. Yeah. And I just think people are tired and upset and getting contractors to work and getting work done and getting our lives back together. I just think people are at wit's end. Ah, uh, ah, uh, yeah. So yeah. yeah. Plus, you don't want to interrupt a man fucking a garden gnome. Yeah. Well, those those <laughs> garden gnomes are squirrely. You know. They are. They yeah. are. They, they get are. away pretty easy. I uh, get if you're you're tired and all that, but like you're literally yelling at the people that are coming to fix what Irene destroyed or Ira or whatever Ira, it was. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, their job is to get it back to working order. Yeah. And they're there to help. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, probably put the gun down for a minute and think about them for a second. Exactly. Yeah. And plus, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot them, then you go to jail. No, you can't make love to your lawn. That's right. That's, they don't give you a lawn in prison. And that sweet, sweet grass is going to get all out of shape because you're not like, there exactly. to keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. And your grandson's not going to do anything about it. He's He's being chased by this other guy. Yeah. He, yeah, he's getting chased in a truck by a 40-year-old who doesn't exactly. know Exactly. Right. Let's think this through, Floridians. Come on. Yeah, come on. We know you're in God's waiting room waiting. That's right. Just You're just waiting to die there in God's waiting room. Just be cool. You might as well just be cool and get along. Exactly. Yeah. This next story is about a really uncool mother of the year. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Uh, this mother left her children in sweltering heat in the car outside a Walmart store because, you know, every once in a while you just got to run into Walmart and get a few things. I guess so. I almost watched uh, Mrs. Bruiser <laughs> destroy a child on her flight back. Really? So it was a, we had a layover in Houston, and then it's like a two-and-a-half, two-hour, 45-minute from Houston to Charlotte, <laughs> and we had this mother sitting next to us who just – her kid was just – I can't, you know, like just something that she had for society. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't know the whole flex. I had my headphones on or whatever. This kid was up and down. He had to be about four. Okay. Up and down, playing his music on his phone without his headphones, kicking seats, Ooh. tripping the stewardess, uh, our flight attendants, mm-hmm. just being a holy terror. Yeah. And all the mom did was keep updating her OnlyFans. Oh, she had an OnlyFans. Yep. And oh. she was proud to show everybody. Oh, she really? She was talking to everybody but the kid. Oh. Yeah, Mrs. Bruiser was like, I'm going to beat your child. Like, <laughs> I'm going to beat you with your child. And Mrs. Bruiser loves kids. Did Mrs. You know? Bruiser ask to see the OnlyFans before she beat the child? No, she saw the OnlyFans because the lady was literally just, you oh, know, okay. showing everybody. Oh, okay. All right. And Mrs. Bruiser made the comment, like, instead of doing OnlyFans, maybe you take care of your only child. <laughs> oh, very nice. Very nice. I love the segue yeah. there. That was good. It's a good transition. It was. Yeah, yeah. It was. So, yeah. So, she almost beat a child. I'm just wondering, you know, in, in punitive damages, how much is the OnlyFans lady going to sue for once Mrs. Bruiser beats this, beats the snot out of the kid? I, just, I, you know, yeah, she, I, and I, Mrs. Bruiser is usually pretty tolerable. This, she yeah, was, yeah. this was definitely ranks up to Mother of the Year, not sweltering heat, Mother of the Year. Right, right, right. No, but I, I hear you. OnlyFans over taking care of your child. Yeah. Uh, did you ask her how we get our OnlyFans? site up and going while you were there oh she gave it to everybody oh the steward the, the flight attendant came over to tell her to, to get her child to sit down yeah, yeah and all that and she's like yeah he's okay he's okay um if you want check out my only fans page it's this on only fans oh wow so she said it to the gay male flight attendant <laughs> oh who i'm sure was real interested in, in yeah i think he was yeah. more interested in my only fans than her only oh fans. okay yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. gave me an extra cookie he gave you an extra cookie, did you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I didn't have to give my OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah, look at that. Bruiser. Ah! <laughs> he might also have been fearing for his life because my wife was <laughs> well, finding that, a yeah. child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's probably like, you might want to settle down there. Yeah, you, you have to go home with her. Here's another cookie. <laughs> Here's another cookie just to keep her calm. Yeah. <laughs> I see what he did. Yeah, I do too. Well, this mother of the year left her child in a sweltering car outside a Walmart store after being arrested for leaving her two children alone. Oh, it's just, it was it was a twofer. It was a twofer. Okay. Yeah, she yeah. is mother of the year. Yeah. Uh, after leaving her two children alone in a locked sweltering vehicle outside a Walmart store, a woman asked cops to turn up the air conditioning in the patrol car, taking her to jail for child abuse. So she, she didn't want it. Be in a sweltering car. She wanted it to be nice and air conditioned. Yeah, come on. If you're yeah. taking me to jail, turn the air out. That's right. Police, what, what do you think I have? My child, children? Oh, see, I, I don't have the. I don't have. You the, have the. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's it's this one. Yeah, it's there. We go right there. <laughs> uh, police say the victims, aged three and six, were left in the vehicle without the engine running, windows closed, and parked in the sun on black asphalt. But yeah, they'll do it. That's what? torture. Yeah. 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 Well, take your kids with you. Yeah. That according to criminal complaints, which note the temperature outside the St. Petersburg, Florida store was 91 degrees. So it's going to be like 
triple that inside that car after a while. You pretty much could bake an easy bake oven cake at, yeah. in, in about six minutes in that car. Yeah. Yeah, you could. Yeah. The children had been in the car for more than 20 minutes. Bruiser. Oh, my gosh. 20 minutes before fire and rescue personnel arrived. At that time, Nyakobo Marr, who was 30 years old, returned to her automobile and was subsequently arrested on a pair of felony child abuse counts, as she should be. Yes. Some people need a license to have kids. Yes. She was also charged with resisting a misdemeanor for allegedly struggling with cops who sought to handcuff her. And I bet you the whole time she's like, I know my rights. I know my rights. I'm not resisting. Yes, you are. Probably. Marr, police say, did not show concern for either child's health, but did ask for air conditioner in the cruiser to be turned up for herself. Not talking about this cruiser either. I'm a little hot. Um, even though I resisted everything and I almost killed my children, can you please turn the air up a smidge? I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Self-entitled twat. <laughs> the name of our new album. Yes, it is. Yes. Self-entitled twat. <laughs> the children were transported to a local hospital for treatment. Child welfare officials were contacted since... There are no family or friends in the area. Mar had recently resided right here in the great state of Minnesota. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. We'll send them back to Minnesota to somebody that can raise them better. Yeah, exactly. To put it into perspective for the listeners, when I if I go do a sauna therapy, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to be in the sauna more than 20 minutes because you could you could die. Right. That's essentially what these kids were in. Yeah. Yeah. I have a picture of Mar for you if you'd like to see it, Bruiser. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm guessing I, hope, she, I hope she's not sweating because, you know, they got put the air on. I'm guessing hot. I'm guessing she can't survive 20 minutes in a hot car either. <laughs> uh, she did admit post Miranda to this offense on video, reported Officer Darren Noop. Marr, who is scheduled for a court appearance, is being held in the county jail in lieu of $20,500 bond. That is what Marr looks like. There. Oh, God. <laughs> She, do you think she has a low heat tolerance? She looks like a melting tootsie roll. She she looks like a melting tootsie roll. She looks like she could probably play line for the Vikings and Cousins would have had yeah. all day to stand back there and throw on Sunday. Yeah, just saying. I'm not I'm not disparaging her. I'm just saying that she probably did need some air conditioning no. on the way to the police station. And I bet you any money those kids don't eat. She eats everything. Yep. So I'm sure this wasn't the first abuse those kids have seen. Yeah. When the Which twi- is sad. When the Twinkies and Ho-Hos come home, guess who gets first shot at them? Exactly. It ain't the kids. Yep. Speaking of delicious treats, we're going to get into some throwing stories here, I believe. Ooh. Yes. The next few stories have the, uh, the, uh, the theme of throwing things. I saw a... Um I think he was homeless. Man throwing feces at a wall saying he's creating art. Neurons. <laughs> you caught me with a mouthful of liquid when you said that. <laughs> and we were walking someplace and my daughter goes, that guy's throwing some against the wall. And the guy looked at us and goes, it's shit. My art is shit. And he's throwing it against the wall and smearing it around. And he had a hat out. So like he was expecting tips. <laughs> at least he didn't put his hand out to get the tips. No, no, he, he had he had he had his he had a hat out. 
<laughs> Wasn't wearing gloves, by the way. Oh, good. Well, he likes to I get know, nice and close to his art. I don't know if it was his feces or somebody else's feces, but it, he said it was shit. So ah. you can smell it. Yeah, well, I bet you could. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know how Bourbon Street smells. This is right yeah, off Bourbon. So. Yeah. Well, so much for yeah. taking him over to the Crystal and buying him a meal. <laughs> you got to wash your hands first, sir. No, I'm fully immersed in my art. We had we had water with us that we were giving to the homeless just because we didn't have cash or anything like that. But we wanted it was hot, so we we're gonna give them bottles of water. And my youngest looks at me and goes, "How close can I get to give him this water bottle?" I go, "Honey, he's fine. Don't worry, he doesn't need <laughs> he doesn't, water. He doesn't like, know. No, we'll just keep going. <laughs> like, let him do his thing. If he can still produce quote unquote paint, he ain't he ain't uh, <laughs> yeah. He, he doesn't suffer. need the water. Let's we'll, yeah. we'll go find another one. <laughs> like, Boy, what do you do if you're having one of those days where maybe the uh, the medium's a little liquid and not so much a solid? You 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 change your art form. You go from you go from oil paints to watercolors. <laughs> I guess that's right. That's that's one of those Jackson Pollock days where it just splatters all over the place. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, you go from. Uh, molding clay to like i said water watercolor <laughs> you go from building a statue to making a jackson pollock painting <laughs> just saying Anyways, i just i i was curious as we were walking away i'm like do we go into the building he's painting on and tell him hey there's a guy <laughs> there's a guy throwing shit at your building <laughs> yeah like <laughs> mrs bruiser's like we just we walk away and we just Enjoy the rest of our day. I'm like, but there's so many questions. Look at you. There's so many questions. I have so many questions as to how he how he found his art. What inspires him? Who is his muse? Why does he have to throw it? Why can't he just spread it? Yeah. What is it? Who who came up with that artistic technique? What did he like? New Banksy? Was he a was he a big fan of Nolan Ryan? I got. I have to know. Instead of Banksy, he's Butsy. <laughs> Butsy, yes. <laughs> Butsy. You need one of these. <laughs> Butsy. Well, he was gone the next day. His, his artwork was gone too, so. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I don't know what happened. A power washer and some bleach? That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Mm. Yeah, I just had so many questions. <laughs> what? <laughs> My art is shit. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You certainly are right, sir. It is shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, New Orleans. It never fails to entertain. Well, <laughs> uh, you got yeah. your money's worth, buddy. I'll tell oh, you. Oh, we. That. That, I'm gonna go in more detail tomorrow. But yeah, we got our money's <laughs> worth on a lot of things, and that one would like just stuck out, and I was waiting somehow. But throwing stuff—that's that's how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Okay. Well, this these next next couple of stories we dedicate to the the uh, the shit painter Tabatsi. Yeah, Tabatsi. Tabatsi. We start off. I really hope next week on our dumb crime, stupid criminals, they arrest somebody from New Orleans for throwing shit in public. You and I'll be like, oh hey, that's Butsy. I know him. I almost bought some of his art. <laughs> it was a shit price, though. <laughs> it was just one bottle of Dalkalax. <laughs> That's all he wanted. That's it. He, he felt like he needed to create more. 
You want more red beans and rice? (laughs) (laughs) You get pottery coming up. (laughs) Pottery. (laughs) I feel the need to make a bowl. Get me some crawfish. (laughs) Yeah. So we go to Florida again. Okay. uh, Where a man is arrested for a Snickers fusillade. <laughs> Unfortunately, the poor workers at Walgreens were struck at 1:20 a.m. in the morning by airborne candy, Snickers to be exact. Is this going to be the new Snickers commercial? Yes. You're a criminal when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies, <laughs> especially when you bean people in the head with them. <laughs> a Florida man was arrested early on September 5th after allegedly pelting a pair of Walgreens workers with Snickers bars during a 1.20 a.m. confrontation. Because why not? (laughs) The employees were not injured in the candy fusillade, as they should not be. Uh, Cops say, if you get injured by a Snickers bar, I don't care if it's, you know, I don't care if it's... that the, the kid from the who closes for the twins who throws 104 miles an hour. I mean, but if it's frozen, well, even well, even if it's frozen, I mean, you shouldn't be, you know, that injured. You get a you, you get a bruise. Yeah. You think Snickers uses that as their sales pitch? <laughs> it Not is it delicious. It won't hurt you. <laughs> even even this delicious Snickers thrown at 104 miles an hour won't hurt you. <laughs> You're talking twins closer to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hold still. Hold still. I'm going to throw this at you. Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville, and this is Hurt by a Snickers. <laughs> <laughs> Hurt by a Snickers. Welcome to Jackass. <laughs> it does seem like a Jackass skit, doesn't it? It does. Boom, 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 boom. Um, the uh, cops say that, oh boy, here's the name here. Idel Noy Quesada, 23 years old. <laughs> I don't and, think well, he's from Florida. And and loves loves throwing candy. Evidently, we're we're close to that Halloween season, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tangled with workers after unsuccessfully trying to buy cigarettes at a Walgreens store in Clearwater, Noy Casada has had shown a photo of an ID card, a photo of an ID card, but was refused service due to the business's policy, according to a criminal complaint. Who shows a photo of their ID card? Why not just carry your ID card around? Yeah. Denied it's not his, hard. Yeah, it's not. Denied his smokes, Noy Casada reportedly became irate and began throwing Snickers bars at a female employee who was hit in the face by the airborne candy. I wonder if he's got an arm on him. Oh, I wonder. Yeah. Uh, well, but, he's, he's fiending for nicotine, so he's probably throwing it harder than he normally would. Well, probably. Uh, so the female employee was hit in the face by the airborne candy, which according to the smoking gun contains nougat, caramel, and peanuts, all of which are enrobed in milk chocolate. The first time I've used the word enrobed all year. Thank you, smoking gun for breaking down. What is it? A Snickers bar. Yep. <laughs> a second worker then told Noy Casada to leave the store, but he refused. Instead, Noy Casada, who appeared intoxicated, Gee, there's a switch. Yeah. Uh, allegedly threw se- several Snickers bars at the other Walgreens employee, striking him in the chest. But he's Superman, so that he let them bounce off. He's like in Christopher Reeve, the first one. He's just standing there. Yeah. Boo. Boo. <laughs> you can't hurt I, me with I your Snickers. I the Walgreens guy actually doing the Matrix. So he's like dodging <laughs> each Snickers box that comes past him. 
<laughs> Throws a Reese's at him. <laughs> That's how he disarms them. <laughs> By the way, did you see uh, Keanu Reeves on on, on Ride with uh, Norman Reedus? No, I heard it was pretty good, though. Yeah, it is. Although I think he's kind of taking the Matrix stuff a little too seriously. I believe that. He's a weird cat. He is a weird cat, yeah. yeah. He just he just randomly will take subways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah somebody told me that story. Like, if you go to New York, New York, any of the big cities that have, like, trolleys or subways, he just randomly will ride them. Yeah. God bless Norman Reedus for putting up with him. That's all I <laughs> it was, it was. I a, like Norman Reedus. He's a great guy. Yeah. It's a, it was a random episode, but it was good. Uh, back to the story. Uh, while Noy Casada claimed he didn't mean to throw the candy at the second worker, surveillance footage shows that he was very intentional where he directed the Snickers bars. <laughs> he didn't mean to throw it at the second worker. First one, bitch deserved it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she had a coming. Yeah. <laughs> Additionally, two of the defendant's cousins corroborated the female worker's statement that Noy Casada threw Snickers bars at her. Noy Casada was arrested on a pair of misdemeanor battery counts. He was booked into the county jail, from which he was released Monday morning. How much bond, Bruiser, do you get for throwing Snickers bars at Walgreens workers? $1,500. Go a little lower. $750. Go a little higher. Uh, let's go $925.63. You are so close. <laughs> it's $1,000 bond to hit two Walgreens employees with Snickers bars. So okay, you can, you can, you can throw quite a few Snickers. That's annoying. He's so happy in his mugshot. He is, isn't he? He's just like, <laughs> yeah, I've been throwing Snickers at, at people. I just wanted cigarettes. Maybe he's happy because he's going to prison and they have cigarettes in prison. Well, well they jail. do. Yeah. But you yeah. gotta, you gotta do things for him. Well, he knows how to throw Snickers bars. <laughs> you want guys, guys, want to see me throw a Snickers bar? I can throw it real far. <laughs> Go stand over there. I bet I can hit you. <laughs> bet you three cigarettes. I can hit you in the shoulder. <laughs> Here's an idea. I want you to toss something else off for a few cigarettes. <laughs> oh, you'll be doing that later. <laughs> That's right. We go to Massachusetts for this next story as we continue our throwing spree. Good old Boston. Boston. We're going to East Longmeadow. Ah, okay. Where women threw bowling balls during a brawl at a bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? They're there. That's right. <laughs> 10 to 15 people fighting chairs and bowling balls were being thrown <laughs> through the air, according to this person. They called it absolute chaos. This is how police described a large-scale brawl that broke out at a bowling alley in East Longmeadow late on Friday and ended with multiple individuals being arrested. So just imagine there's a little brawl at a bowling alley there in East Longmeadow Bruiser, and you see chairs being thrown, bowling balls being thrown, people fighting. Cigarette machines being thrown. Yeah. People fighting. Looks All like because somebody was over the line! <laughs> <laughs> over the line, that's right. And they didn't take a stroke for it. Exactly. They're over the line. League rules say you are over the line. <laughs> Police responded shortly after 10:20 p.m. to a report of several people fighting inside the Shaker Bowl and uh, Shaker Bowl bowling alley. <laughs> Shaker Bowl. Good old Shaker Bowl. I didn't know bowling was still a big thing. I thought it kind of no. went the way of the mall. No, you know what? The kids are bringing it back. They are. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, good for them. Yep. The I remember being in a bowling league as a kid. The kids love the bowling. Uh, yep. Fighting inside the Shaker Bowl bowling alley at Shaker Road, believe it or not, which offers regular bowling and not candle pin bowling. They're okay, hardcore. So 
they're going yeah they're going serious this is yep. definitely we're over the line is a thing yep one toke over the line sweet jesus Officer Zachary Paremba was the first to arrive at the scene and described it in his report as absolute chaos with 10 to 15 people actively fighting and chairs and bowling balls flying through the air in all directions. (laughs) Everywhere but on the alleys. (laughs) According to a Facebook post from the East Longmeadow Police Department, Paremba quickly restrained and handcuffed two different women, which I bet he had fun doing that, uh, who he allegedly saw raise bowling balls over their heads to throw at others. Boy, those are some tough chicks. Yeah, they're getting, they want to fight. Yeah. They're feisty little girls. Huh? Yeah. Officers Nicholas Otteson arrived at the bowling alley shortly after and detained another woman who he described as being an active aggressor in the fight, according to a department statement. First responders evaluated multiple people for injuries, but ultimately there were no serious wounds found on anyone, probably because it's easy to dodge a bowling ball coming at you. <laughs> Don't know if you've ever tried, but you have a few seconds to get out of the way. If you dodge a bowling ball, you can dodge a ball. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. However, some individuals were minorly injured, according to the statement. Officers spoke with multiple witnesses and arrested three Springfield women uh, ages 19, 19, and 21. You're right, the kids are bringing it back. The kids are bringing it back on multiple charges, including assault and battery by a dangerous weapon and disorderly conduct. They're expected to be arraigned in Palmer District Court at a future date. Uh, The department went on to issue a statement saying, this is an ongoing investigation and it is possible other participants could be charged in the future as well. While at the bowling alley investigating the brawl, police located a vehicle in the parking lot that had been reported stolen in Springfield. That vehicle was towed and the circumstances surrounding how it arrived there remain under investigation. (laughs) So they got a stolen car out of the deal too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Hey man, um, Let's go steal his car. It's cool, dude. But at nine o'clock, I got to be at my league. Like, yeah, yeah, this is the league. It's it's league right. night, man. I'll get you there. I'll get you there. Yeah. When the fight breaks out, like, dude, what do we do with the stolen car? <laughs> they took the car, man. Well, we got to walk. <laughs> yep. Speaking of things that have been stolen, uh, what's the weirdest thing you could think you could steal and get still caught with and charged with a felony? I once stole a newspaper box, a Newsweek newspaper box. That got you a felony? No, no, no. But I was told that if I didn't return it, I was told by my friends that if I didn't return it, it could be a felony. Really? Yeah, because there's money in it, I guess. Huh. I didn't know there was money in it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was told that. So that's, I, I went through a phase when I was younger, I just, if it wasn't nailed down, I'd take it. <laughs> my whole, my whole intention was I was, I was, well, what we did was I was taking road construction signs. Yes. Okay. And the little blinking signs. Yeah. Yeah, we took yeah, those, yeah. And then, um, we actually closed off an exit. Okay. All right. <laughs> I stole so much stuff that I actually closed an exit. <laughs> like for like three days, this exit was closed. There was no construction going on whatsoever. This <laughs> is me and my buddies put it out. That's kind of that's kind of funny. Out of it. That's kind of funny. Yeah, there yeah. was another. There's a little rich neighborhood where I grew up, and let's just say the um, the last word in the and I'm not gonna give the the neighborhood away, but the last word is pines. Okay. Well, they now now if you go look at the words, they're cemented in and bolted in. Mm-hmm. But at the time, they were just like staked in. Mm-hmm. So for a while, it was penis <laughs> because we moved around the letters. 
so then I, I I stole this newspaper box, and that's when my buddy goes, dude, we've, but this is too far. <laughs> so what do you mean? He goes, you can get this a felony because there's money in it. Yeah. I was like, there's money in it? He's like, yeah. Like, how do you think people get the paper? I was like, oh, okay. So we returned it. Oh, there you go. Okay. So we returned it to where it belonged. We, we put it on the other side of town. <laughs> your, your, uh, your blatant crime spree was at an end at that point, huh? I, yeah. <laughs> I still did other stuff, but yeah. <laughs> you, went, you went from being Robin Hood to just Robin at that point. <laughs> exactly. Okay. <laughs> was, was, plus, my buddy said, what are we going to do with a newspaper box? Yeah, like, true. We can't refill it. Yeah. You know, you yeah. take the money out of it, then we got whatever the money is in there. He's like, at least the road construction and stuff was fun because we could drive past it and be like, oh, look, it's still closed. Yeah. yeah. And then the pine sign we drove past, of course, it said penis, which we thought was <laughs> funny. And it made the paper. <laughs> there you go. You made the paper. Yeah, I actually have. When Mrs. Bruiser and I first met, she, we were moving to our first apartment. She found the newspaper clipping. She goes, why are you keeping this? I go, that was me and my buddy. <laughs> <laughs> we went down in notoriety. Yeah, we all got it. <laughs> nice. She's nice. like, I remember that as a kid. I'm like, yep, that was us. <laughs> that was us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh, so naughty, but so good. Um, <laughs> I do not endorse any of that now. Yeah. Now that yeah, I'm older, no. I have my yeah. own house. Yeah. <laughs> I have You're a tax citizen. Yep. Yep. You, you, yep. You, if it's not yours, leave it alone. That's right. I drive now, so I know what it's like when exits are closed for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> Although that is classic. That is classic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I have a story here from Hawaii where two men were charged with felony agriculture theft. Oh. Okay. Okay. This, I believe, because Papa Bruiser, when they moved into their Arizona home, took took my son and I out. And he's like, we're just going to dig up some cactuses. I want some cactuses for the front yard. We're like, perfect. So we got about five or six. Mm-hmm. We get back. We're planting. And Mama Bruiser comes out and goes, what are, you, what are you guys doing? We're like, oh, we're, you know, Papa wanted cactuses. So we went and got some cacti. And she was, it's a felony. They're protected. <laughs> In the state of Arizona, you cannot remove oh. cactuses. And I looked at Papa. I go, did you know this? He goes, oh, of course. I go, you took your grandson on a felony? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind me. You took your grandson? <laughs> right, right. He's like, it's the desert. Nobody's going to notice. I'm like, I don't care. Yikes. That's So funny. I can see felony agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 41-year-old Kellen Tolentino and 38-year-old Joshua Redding, or Redding rather, Kellogg, both of Hanoka, not Anoka, but Hanoka, uh, were arrested and charged with the theft of over 75 pounds of oranges from a Kalopa farm. Oh, wow. Evidently, scurvy is still a thing in Hawaii. <laughs> I don't know why you want oranges. Uh, on Tuesday, both men made their initial appearances in Hilo District Court. Both were later released on supervised release over prosecutors' objections in order to return for preliminary hearings in South Kalo... Kalo- I think it's Ko- Kohala Court District Court. Kohala District Court. There you go. My mouth ain't working the way it's supposed to. That's what she said. You don't got the Simone words down, do you? I don't know. I don't have the Simone words down. On September 19th, that's when they're supposed to uh, reappear. As the complaints alleged, Tolentino and Redding Kellogg were each charged with theft in the second degree, obtained and or exerted um, 
unauthorized control over the property of another. Oranges, the value of which exceeded $100, but did not exceed $20,000, and the weight exceeded 25 pounds, and criminal trespass, trespass in the second degree. The more serious offense, theft in the second degree, is a Class C felony offense, which carries a penalty of either a five-year prison term or four years probation and up to 12 months in jail. The charges are merely allegations, and the defendants are presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. The case was led by Officer Dion Santiago of the Hamakua Patrol, Hawaii Police Department. The case is still prosecuted by Deputy, Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Georgia Berenberg. Oranges, Bruiser. I'm glad that they formed that Orange Task Force. Yeah, I'm glad they have that up and running because, by yeah. God, the entire island would fall apart. Well, Orange. you know, if you're driving in Florida, you always got the people under the underpass on your oranges. They got to come from someplace. They come from Hawaii, yes. <laughs> well, I've never been to Hawaii, so I don't know if they do that in Hawaii. <laughs> That's true. Uh, this next story has to do with why we should probably beat our kids more often. Uh, <laughs> and probably has to do with everything of, you know what, I think younger parents are probably assholes these days and don't let their kids have puppies. Yeah. Okay. I, I really do think parents are getting more and more lazy. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, they, they probably don't let their kids have a lot. And, and this is why I'm, I'm going to cite this story from Golden Valley, Minnesota. Next. If it's not digital, parents don't give it to their kids. Right. Because, and that's wrong. Because they're afraid that they're going to be the ones having to take care of it. So they don't, they yeah. don't want the responsibility. Yeah. Here, here's an example of why you let your kid have a dog. I'm all for it. You ready for this? Yep. A teen nephew of a Golden Valley homeowner is charged with robbery in, in the theft of a car. First of all, they never let the kid have a car. And second, robbing a litter of puppies from them. Oh, geez. So that tells me two things. They never let the kid have the car on the Saturday night. Yep. And they never let the kid have a puppy. And they never punished the kid for anything because he didn't know that stealing and everything would lead to jail. That's right. That's right. According to prosecutors, the homeowners were bound by duct tape by 18-year-old Jahan Lynch while they were robbed of valuables and eight American bully puppies. Okay. Oh. If, again, if you're going to steal something, don't get it that can be traced back. It's not hard to trace eight bulldog, you know, bully puppies to right. somebody. You have to take care of them for one. Right. But for two, it's such a niche market. You know what I mean? It's right. not hard to find. <laughs> it's not like you can go on Facebook Marketplace and say, hey, found these puppies. But again, this is probably an 18-year-old kid who, you know, he, he was denied a, a bunch of stuff growing up and told oh, yeah. no all the time because parents were lazy. Yeah. And his, his parents never punished him for everything. Oh, are your feelings hurt? I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, did you get in a fight at school today? Well, it wasn't your fault, Junior. It was theirs. Yep. Oh, uh, no, you can't have a puppy, but here's a digipet. Yeah, yeah. You know, here's here's Nintendo Wii puppies. Take care of a puppy on there. Yeah. Oh, you want to play Grand Theft Auto? Go ahead. Play Grand Theft Auto for six hours a day. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what it was. A Robbinsdale man is facing robbery charges in connection with the Golden Valley home invasion in August, in which the alleged thieves got away with over $100,000 in valuables. On Thursday, 18-year-old Jahan Lynch was charged in Hennepin County with one count of first-degree robbery stemming from the August 26th incident. According to court documents, the felony charge carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison and or $35,000 if convicted. The criminal Give him the full 20. I say, yeah, yeah, do it. He'll get out when he's 38. He'll actually learn a lesson. 
Yeah, I'll probably get out earlier. They'll probably give them the minimum. I, I'm saying, but schedule, you know, yeah. say, hey, how's your feelings now, asshole? Yeah, exactly. The criminal complaint filed Thursday said Lynch, a nephew of one of the homeowners, was at the residence on the 6300 block of Medicine Lake Road when he went outside to check on some noises. The complaint said that when Lynch returned, he entered the home with three other people, allegedly wearing masks and carrying guns. According to prosecutors, Lynch proceeded to bound the two homeowners with duct tape while allegedly threatening to kill them if they didn't provide a combination to their safe. One of the homeowners claimed Lynch was also carrying a firearm. Court records say the suspects not only made off with valuables like jewelry and electronics, but also allegedly took eight Merle American bully puppies and a 2019 Dodge Challenger. It's a nice car. It is a nice car. A warrant for Lynch's arrest is currently active, citing the violent nature of the incident, the familial relationship between Lynch and one of the victims, and the fact that Lynch is aware that the victims filed a police report. So, yeah. I'm surprised they didn't get him with domestic since he had a family member in there. Yeah, yeah. I say you know, throw the book at him. I, I agree. Yeah. And whoever family member that is, go back to his parents and go, what the hell, man? Yeah. Like spank the kid. Yep. Yeah. It's it's obvious it was just it's a kid who always heard no. It's sad that nowadays kids are just an accessory. Mm-hmm. Remember remember in early two thousands when having like a a purse dog was the accessory and everyone felt bad for those dogs because yeah Paris Hilton and all of them had it. That's what children have become. Yep. They're an accessory now. They're not they're not a responsibility. They're an accessory, and that's sad because yeah. these kids are going to grow up like this. They're not going to know right from wrong. Because they're, you know, your purse doesn't know right from wrong. Yeah. And they're they're going to think they could just walk into people's homes and take things. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I'm your parent first and foremost. I'll be your friend later. Like, I'm, I'm happy now I'm in that part of my relationship with my kids where I can be their friend. But I, when I was like, when they were kids, they hated me. Because mm-hmm. guess what? You, you get in trouble. You pay the consequences. Yeah. You're damn right you're not going to that party because you did this. You're damn right you're not driving today because you did this. Mm-hmm. You can scream, you hate me all you want, but guess what? Five, six years from now, we're going to be in New Orleans having a good time. <laughs> you know, right. like, yeah. And you're going to be a good human being that has a steady job, pays their taxes, and doesn't get in trouble. That's right. But you know what? I'm going to make you sit there and watch Butsy paint his shit all over a wall, and we're going to laugh <laughs> exactly. about it. Where was Butsy's parents when he was growing That's up? right. You know what? Butsy's parents might have been encouraging his art. They might have. Look at that. <laughs> I bet you at a young age, he was smearing, smearing his shit all over the crib. And the mom's like, Butsy, these are so beautiful. Yeah. You ought to be an art. You ought to be an artist. Yeah. I bet you that's what happened to Butsy when he was young. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he never stopped. Never. Never stopped. Speaking of never stopping, this next story uh, has to do with an Adelaide man who was charged after allegedly driving a stolen scissor lift and driving himself down Hindley Street. <laughs> Those don't go very fast. <laughs> they don't, but they're fun. They are. They're a lot of fun. I yeah. love playing with scissor lifts. Yeah. An Adelaide man has been charged after being caught riding a stolen scissor lift down a popular Adelaide party strip last week. At about 4 a.m., police security officers were monitoring the CBD's CCTV and saw the 26-year-old, he's a youngin. Yep. Uh, he evidently can't handle his liquor either. Uh, was driving the scissor lift down Hindley Street. Police said the vehicle was stolen from a construction site before it was driven along the King William Street, Curry Street, and Lay Streets. Uh, the Lightsview man returned 
a blood alcohol of how much bruiser? How drunk oh. do you think you have to be to be driving a scissor lift? I'm going to say twice the legal limit. So 0.16. Ooh, that's a little high. Bring it down just a little bit. Okay. Let's go a point. Let's go point one oh. Point one oh. Okay. Kind of go a little bit in the middle. Kind of. Point one three. There you go. Point one three eight. <laughs> this guy was hammered. Yeah, he was. But you know what? He lives on the third floor. He didn't want to walk up the stairs. That's right. So he figured just scissor lift himself up to his window and climb in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he was charged with illegal use of a motor vehicle, drink driving, and driving an unregistered and uninsured motor vehicle. What was he supposed <laughs> to do? Bring it over to Progressive and say, hey. <laughs> He's supposed to call some search age. Hey, I'm, I'm going to steal this scissor lift. How do I get it covered? <laughs> yeah, how can I cover this so I can drive it home? <laughs> they don't bundle that, do they? No, they don't bundle that with uh, home and auto and, yeah, and <laughs> All that other fun stuff. He was also in, issued an instant loss of license for six months. So he lost his license for six months on top of it. Yep. Yeah. He was bailed. Enjoyed the public transit or riding a bike. That's right. He was bailed to appear in Adelaide's magistrate's court in November. So he'll face a magistrate's court where the judge will then look at him and go, Crikey, how do you draw that sizzle lift? <laughs> uh, yeah, he'll get instructions then. Uh, this next story was, speaking of driving strange things, uh, was sent to us by a listener, so thank you so much. A Florida man was riding a human-sized hamster wheel in the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, okay. But now he's facing federal charges for that. What? Yeah. It's kind of funny how some of this stuff works. You just can't take off on a human-sized hamster wheel and not get charged. Really? See, I thought you could just do that. No. Well, I'm going to cancel my hamster-sized or my human-sized hamster wheel done. Yeah, you probably should. A Florida man who is attempting to cross the Atlantic Ocean in a man-made hamster wheel is facing federal charges after it took the U.S. Coast Guard five days to bring him ashore. That according to a criminal complaint filed in <laughs> Miami. Cruiser, if we're ever drinking together. Yeah. Which we do. We've done. Yeah. We and I've had a couple of beers. Oh, yeah. If I ever come up to you and say, Cruiser. Yeah. Take my human hamster wheel. I'm going to go straight across the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. Please talk me out of it. I will. <laughs> I will. I'll just say, remember, buddy, federal charges. Like, I got all this beef jerky. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. No, it's not worth it. Not unless you make it straight to the king's palace. Because, <laughs> you know, Camilla's a relative. I can maybe arrange a sleepover. You might be able to get asylum. But other than that. <laughs> it's getting there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Coast Guard spotted 51-year-old, well, they're in the same age range as us. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe you just go batshit crazy at the end of your life and think you can do stuff like this. If I'm When my CTE kicks in, just talk me <laughs> out of it. All right? I'm going to be the one to talk you out of it. It's yeah, not going to be please. Mrs. Bruiser. It's going to be me. You're going you're gonna to rely on me to talk you out of shit. <laughs> I see. Uh, the Coast Guard spotted 51-year-old Razor Ray Bellucci. Uh, some 70 miles or 112 kilometers off the coast of Tybee Island, Georgia, on August 26th. Boy, they made it a, a long way out. Well, 70 miles, yeah that's, yeah. that's quite a haul. While making preparations for Hurricane Franklin, the complaint filed in federal court said Bellucci was charged Tuesday with obstruction of boarding and violating a captain of the port order. That's an international crime, too. Yeah. Because that's international waters. 
boy, you know something, uh, Bruiser, I've always wanted to violate a captain of the port order, if you know what I'm saying there. <laughs> yeah. uh, Bellucci- Wait, so technically he's an international criminal. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty cool title. That is, isn't it? Yeah. Just don't tell people how you got it. <laughs> right, right. You can't really brag about it when they throw you in the brig. Right. Yeah. Uh, Bellucci told the Coast Guard crew that he was attempting to ride the hydropod vessel to England. See? Yeah. Yeah. Like Camille. He's got to, yep. He's got to, he's got to meet Camilla. Yep. The, the queen consort. And that he had a Florida registration, which he was un- unable to locate for them on board. Well, probably oh, yeah, he forgot been, his ID. Yeah. It's been going around and around in that little wheel. And it's <laughs> hard to catch when it's going around and around like that. Uh, the officer. He didn't think he needed his ID. He thought, you know, no. once I get to England, they're just going to give me all the beer I want. They're going to see that huge vessel and they're just going to load them up with food and beer. Yeah. They'll be yeah. like, you did what? Awesome. Welcome to our yeah. country. Welcome, Mike. Uh, the officer said the vessel was afloat as a result of. The officer said the vessel was afloat as a result of wiring and buoys and determined that Bellucci was conducting a manifestly unsafe voyage. Well, no shit. (laughs) Do you really think a hamster wheel is going to be the safest thing to put out on the water? Yeah, exactly. As long as he's afloat. When they attempted to get him to leave the vessel, Bellucci told him so, or told them that he had a knife and threatened to harm himself. Oh, that's a good, that's a good plan. He that's, wanted to go to England bad. That's the naked gun plan right there. Yeah, it is. I'll kill myself. Um, Coast Guard Special Agent Michael A. Perez wrote that in a complaint. The next day, Bellucci threatened to blow himself up when the Coast Guard approached him again about leaving the vessel. Boy, he really knows how to hold them off, doesn't he? I was going to say, like, as a Coast Guard, you're, like, questioning, like, does he have explosives on that thing? <laughs> like, why would he need explosives? Like, what is flammable on that thing? <laughs> I don't know. When officers saw Bellucci holding wires, they contacted the U.S. Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit to help them determine the blast radius of the bomb. <laughs> this guy came prepared. The, the U.S. just looked at it and went, nah. Give it a shot. Let's see what happens. If you're well, going to blow up, fine. Let us get at a safe distance. Well, we'll back up 150, 200 feet and let them do it. On August 28th, the Coast Guard cutters, Campbell and Valiant, arrived on scene to offer support, and they launched a small boat to deliver food and water and to give Bellucci predictions of the hurricane. That was nice of them. Yeah. They again ordered Bellucci off the vessel, and he refused, but he told them that the bomb was not real. Oh, that was nice of them. <laughs> On August 20th. Hey, yesterday I told you about that bomb. Yeah, my bad. Turns out not real at all. Thanks for the food and water, though, guys. Appreciate it. You know, yeah. you've been. And the hurricane the update. Yeah. And the hurricane update. Thanks. Appreciate it. You're the best. On August 29th, the Coast Guard successfully removed Bellucci from the vessel. My guess is there was some force there. And on September 1st, he was brought to the Coast Guard base in Miami Beach. Bellucci attempted a voyage in a similar homemade vessel in 2014. According to the complaint, in 2015, he was served a captain of the port order from the Coast Guard that applied to any subsequent voyages. Bellucci filed to comply with the order and was interdicted in a homemade vessel in 2016. He attempted another... Someone buy this guy a cruise to England. Right? Like, seriously, this guy just wants to go to England. Buy him a cruise. Right. He attempted another voyage in 2021, and the Coast Guard (laughs) intervened then as well. His attorney, Mickey Bloom, did not immediately respond Thursday to an email from the Associated Press. Court records show Bellucci posted how much bond for this whole thing, Bruiser. 
Uh, it's got to be up there. I'm going to say $500,000. A little less. It's $100,000. A little more. $300,000. You're close. $250,000. Well, they need to extradite this guy to like Idaho. <laughs> like, <where laughs> he has no access to ocean at all. Somewhere where he's landlocked. <laughs> hey, you're going to Oklahoma. Enjoy. You're not really going anywhere, but you are. You're getting plenty of land to explore. No ocean. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You're the furthest away from England we can get you. <laughs> and we're going to get you a British guide so you can hear the accent but, and pretend you're there, but you're not. We're going to give you a Netflix account and just let you listen to The Crown over and yeah, over yeah. and over again. So you're there, but you're not. <laughs> Enjoy. Our next story has to do with, um, you know, a place I just came from, Sault Ste. Marie, oh. Michigan. Oh, okay, I have cool. a feeling this is one of the people who was at the conference that was at okay. Michigan Paracon. It says here they have an update on the story. A Florida man's motive is unknown in an arson and shooting at the Michigan State Police Department in Sault Ste. Marie. But he, okay. At their post. Well, you know, you said it was busy. I saw that exchange between you and Adam Barry about how you were both there, but you were both so busy. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. literally just a wave across the room. So yeah. somebody could have snuck out and done this. I think so. I think so. I think, uh, I think somebody from Florida came to cause trouble during the whole yeah. deal. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, hey, Tim Dennis, you do uh, dumb crime, stupid criminals, huh? Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. Let, let's let's <laughs> let's leave you with a story here. I think is exactly. What yeah, he's like, I got yeah. you, I got you, cruiser. Yeah, uh, well, not literally got you, cruiser. They got a cruiser. <laughs> yeah. They got a police cruiser in this deal. Okay, they, okay. They mixed up the terminology. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, a Michigan State Police Lieutenant said he was shocked after three patrol cars were destroyed at the Sioux St. Marie Post on Wednesday morning. Charred metal is all that remains of three Michigan State Police cruisers. <laughs> Maybe they were aiming for me. Yeah. I, I got out of town just in time. I think you did. Yeah. Uh, the three Michigan State Police cruisers were set on fire by an arsonist Wednesday morning. Michigan State Police 8th District Public Information Officer Lieutenant Mark... Giannunzio. Wow, that's a last name. So, say, that's not really a, a Michigan last name there. That's more of a New York last name. It kind of is. Said the events of this crime were astonishing. It is startling, Giannunzio said. Uh, these work sites are supposed to be our safe spaces where our troopers can go, let down their hair, and get the paperwork done. <laughs> Do you really just let your hair down when you're getting paperwork done? I don't have any hair. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know how. I don't know what that's like. I, I hate paperwork. Yeah, me too. Uh, he said, when our building and our cars are attacked in those areas, it's a big wake-up call to say that this could happen anywhere at any time. Giannunzio said the three patrol cars were destroyed and a fourth has moderate fire damage. He said no troopers were at the post Wednesday morning when a 39-year-old Florida man doused the cruisers with gasoline, set them on fire, and shot at them with a rifle. <laughs> He'll learn those state police. <laughs> That's pretty thorough. Uh, after an extensive investigation and multiple tips, the suspect was found just south of the Sioux Thursday afternoon when police carried out a search warrant. The suspect shot toward the troopers and police shot back. Boy, this guy's off his rocker. This guy's way off his rocker. The man was injured. His name has not been released. Giannunzio said officers across the department are shocked to be a victim of a crime. We think this kind of activity maybe is a bigger city issue, but there we are in the beautiful UP, and this kind of activity happens, Giannunzio said. It is a reminder for everybody to stay vigilant. 
Giannunzio said it has been more than 20 years since an MSP post or vehicle has been attacked. Investigators are still trying to figure out uh, the man's motive. I think this guy just watched First Blood and said, hey, I can be Rambo. I guess, right? Because that's that type of community. Yeah. Uh, MSP said Friday that the 39-year-old man is hospitalized in critical condition. He was injured after shooting towards the troopers on Thursday afternoon. Uh, police started looking for the man after he drove into the driveway of the MSP Sault Ste. Marie Post around 3.15 a.m. on Wednesday and doused several patrol cars with gasoline set them on fire. Surveillance images showed the man then pulling out a rifle out of his SUV and firing multiple rounds into and around the p- patrol vehicles. That is crazy. I wonder what he has against the MSP. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just. I wouldn't be shocked to hear that it was someone who just was one of those fringe people at uh, Michigan Paracon. Just saying. <laughs> and he's going to say, "I thought I was coming after the cruiser, not cruisers." <laughs> I love. I don't know what he looks like, so I got three of them. <laughs> yeah, so I got all three of them. Figured I hit one of them. Yep. I don't know. No idea. Two stories left today on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. This is our not safe for work portion of the program. So, ah, okay. Not like boobies anything. Boobies and beer. Beer that's, and boobies. That's right. So, and literally boobies and beer on this one of these stories. So, um, now is the time where if you have kids in the room, usher them out of the room. If you're listening at work, turn down your device or put in your earbuds right now. Uh, we are going to get a little funky with it in five, four, three. To Owahan. Bruiser, you've just been traveling. Yep. I was traveling late last month. And sometimes when people are traveling, they decide that they want to bring back a little souvenir with them. Oh, of course. But sometimes. A couple back. Sure. But sometimes that souvenir is a little bit of a contraband issue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you try to think of how you can sneakily bring it back with you. Not saying we condone that sort of activity here on Dumb Crime, Stupid no. Criminals. But sometimes you just got to get something home. Yeah, sometimes you got to stick at places and get through TSA. Yeah. So is there anything that you had to, maybe in your earlier years, get home that you had to sneak away? <laughs> uh, cannabis. Oh. Some, some THC gummies. Yeah. Yeah. You managed to get it home? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, there yeah. you go. See. I mean, we I all, did. There, I, see, now, our travels is unique because as professional wrestlers mm-hmm. we carry different things like for instance everyone knows a, a blading you know mm-hmm. it's when you cut yourself well we need razor blades for that which you can't fly with i got stopped in texas one time because i forgot i had a pair of rubber brass knuckles in my bag that i used for a finish the night before mm-hmm. so going through tsa they see the big brass knuckles they pull you out like you what you have and you have to go through the whole rigmarole like you know i'm pro wrestler yada 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 yeah you know, and I've anytime you have a heavyweight, every time you have a belt, they stop you. Yeah. You know, they pull you up. Yeah. Uh, I, so us hiding stuff, eh, you really don't. Yeah. Cause you're going to, you know, you're going to get searched anyways. Yeah. Depending on what you're doing, you know, with your gear bag. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've, I've taken gummies and put them in my check on. I, I, when I used to fly out, when I was living in Wisconsin, we used to fly out to Maryland all the time. I'd bring an empty case empty suitcase just to put um, cases of yingling in there. Oh, okay. And check those and fly those home. That's legal, so. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Understandable. Okay. Um, yeah, I've had, I've had one or two 
contraband things I brought with me that I didn't know I was bringing with me, but all of a sudden I figured out I brought with me. <laughs> That's the thing too, is like, if you don't know, like I had a buddy who came back from, I think Scotland and he had ab- like actual absinthe. Yeah. And they took that from him. So that's contraband in America. Oh, and I didn't, I didn't know that. Did you know? I mean, you know, I didn't like know I guess that. the absinthe no. they sell here is different than the absinthe they sell in, in Europe. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. No idea. Not saying neither did he. Like he didn't get charged or anything, but they're like, as ah, you know, for future. Yeah. You can't have this. Interesting. No, I had no yeah. idea. Well, I have a story of one woman here who happened to sneak something back in her bra. Oh, see, now that's original. But it is. I original. figured they did. I figured they always look there. Well, you would think with the scanners at TSA, it'd be pretty easy yeah. to see, right? This woman thought that she would try to sneak in 16 live lizards inside her bra and get away with it. Uh, ma'am, your breasts are moving. Yes. <laughs> I fucking. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I'm always flexing my tits. And somehow that, <laughs> that just shows up on the scanner. I apologize. I'll try to not do it again. What do you mean there's a lizard there? Is that a pickup line? <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's the moment that Customs seized 16 live lizards inside a ferry passenger's bra. <laughs> Customs agents were left gobsmacked after discovering a woman at the Fusion Port in China after she tried to traffic five bags worth of lizards inside her bra. Jeez. I like gobsmacked. That's a great word. Them some big titties, Bruiser. <laughs> that's all I got to say. Man, that's the problem is she put them right there. So the male people are like, oh, look at the size of those. Yeah. yeah. And then probably one went, yeah, but wait, one's moving. <laughs> like that's not supposed to happen. A little lizard head pops up out of the cleavage and you go, ah. Well, that lady's a lizard person, huh? Yeah, lizard person. Uh, this is the moment customs agents in China seized 16 live lizards inside a female passenger's bra. The unnamed woman had been attempting to traffic the reptiles into Hong Kong, but was left red-faced after being caught on the Chinese mainland side of the border. Footage shows her shuffling through the customs area at Fusion Port, wearing incredibly baggy clothes, and was later forced to undergo a strip search after she drew too many suspicions. As officers took her aside, they discovered she had five mesh bags placed inside her bra, which contained 16 rare sail-finned lizards. Video released by the country's customs department shows agents the lizards... Shows agents, there's no comma here, the lizards out of the bags and placing them into large plastic containers while waiting for wildlife experts to take over. The sailfin lizard, or Hydrosaurus... Amboinensis, Amboinensis, I believe, or sailfin dragon is a group of large iguana-like reptiles named after the sail-like structure on their tails. Native to Indonesia and the Philippines, they are commonly found living near water and are threatened by both habitat loss and exotic pet trade. Okay. Uh, sizes vary with the largest males growing up to three and a half feet long. Oh, wow. That's I'm assuming little, these are all babies. <laughs> that's a little hard to get near your, in near your, I don't know house. how big her yeah. boobs were, but I'm assuming these are all babies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the females are smaller than that, than that three and a half feet. It's not known exactly what gender of reptile was seized by this woman. Last month, custom agents seized 77 seahorses, five snakes and snail ointment from a man traveling through us airports. The male passenger was passing through Washington Dulles International Airport from Vietnam 
and was subjected to a secondary bag check when suspicious of its contents were raised by customs agents. What is snail ointment? It's I've heard good. of snail trails. Snail ointment? <laughs> I don't think they're the same. <laughs> uh, the check was carried out on August 1st and revealed the passenger was carrying a particularly bizarre contraband and items that include 77 dried seahorses, dead snakes, and an ointment derived from snails along with illegal pork products. The man was traveling to a final destination if Fairfax, Virginia. Let me see if it says what... Uh, I'm looking it up right now. You could you could buy it. The import of all items discovered required necessary permits or documentation of which the man did not have. Additionally, uncertified pork products from Vietnam are prohibited by the U.S. Department of Agriculture due to the potential introduction of the dangerous African swine fever and swine vesicular disease. A second traveler from Vietnam who arrived on August 4th was destined to San Francisco. It was found carrying four prohibited pork products and 50 small boxes of a commercial herbal liquid medicine that listed its ingredients as snake oil. You might want to pick up some of the snail ointment there, Tim. Why? What does it do? Uh, snail mucin is also known for its healing benefits has been shown to enhance wound healing and can improve the appearance of scarring. Really? It's a nourishing moisturizer huh. without the slime. There you go. Well, see, you could snail trail all over your foot. <laughs> <laughs> snail trails all over my foot. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of snail trails, are you ready for our last story? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> we go to the great Minnesota get together for our final story, <laughs> which just wrapped up over Labor Day. I got out there once this year. Yeah. I was not impressed. It's uh, it's very hot, very peopley. Um, yeah, the great unwashed get together. It's uh, <laughs> or the great unwashed sweat together, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the Minnesota State Fair for the first year in quite a while was down in attendance by 290,000 people because it With was weather. Oh yeah. The weather, it was so hot. Yeah. This, this last 10 days of the fair that people just didn't want to go out. How hot was it? Well, it was so hot that people were losing their undergarments on the sky glider. Oh, okay. Yeah. In fact, the Minnesota State Fair hopes that this was your last year throwing your undergarments off the sky glider. Just like at a concert. <laughs> That's right. Now, if you've never seen what the sky glider is, Bruiser, and I'm, I'm sure you've been to the Minnesota State Fair. That's the sky glider. Well, that, that Wisconsin State Fair too. I think yeah. all state fairs. Yeah, it's 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 that little air trolley or whatever that goes on the on the line. So you've got yeah. two of you fit in a little car, and you can yeah. you can ride all over the fair on it. It's got the little trolley lines, right? Thir Thirteen year old bruiser learned that it's worth the dollar to ride on that because you can look down with girls' shirts when you're. That's right. There. Yeah, when you're up in the air, right? Yeah, yeah. I learned that very young. Yeah. For people riding the Sky Glider during the Minnesota State Fair this year, there's a good chance many riders saw a familiar yet surprising sight, which was a colorful array of bras, underwear, countless scrunchies, stuffed animals, and even a VHS tape decorating the roof of the Kemp's Little Farmhands exhibit. You guys still have VHS up there, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we use it from time to time, you know. I, who are we to be technologically advanced? Yeah. 
no one seems to know how the tradition began, but year after year, the roof ends up being a display of the public that the that the public curates for the fair. So, in other words, people toss their dirty underwear and all this other crap onto the little Kemp's little farmhands exhibit there. <laughs> The great throwdown tradition is what they're calling it at the fair has been occurring since 2001 when the Sky Glider first opened, according to a 2016 story from the Pioneer Press. That's the St. Paul Pioneer Press. Over the years, media outlets have reported on dropped items, including Sweet Martha's cookies, a toilet plunger, stuffed animals, and even Bruiser, a prosthetic leg. <laughs> I don't need this anymore. <laughs> I can just hoof it. Uh... NPR News <laughs> rode one of the first sky glider chairs on day one of the fair and documented a clear roof. There's nothing on it. Oh, well, it's the first day of the fair. That's right. You wouldn't see anything on there. Of Yet, course. an hour and a half later, there was one key lime bra, one sunny yellow pair of underwear, and one black chunky sandal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The little farmhand staff usually waits until the fair ends to clear the roof of the items, according to media stories in prior years. Oh, God, it gets hot and sunny up there for 10 yeah. days. I mean, if you're throwing your dirty underwear down there. Oh, that's going to stink. Yeah. Uh, but this year was different. The state fair cleaned it off in the middle of the fair. According to social media, fairgoers noticed that the roof seemed more active with the unmentionables. <laughs> Commenters on social media reacted to the photos of the roof, saying this year by far had more items on the roof. That's because it was hot. Here's a, a picture bruiser of items on the roof of the Kemp's <laughs> Little Farmhands exhibit. A lot of underwear. There's a lot of underwear up there, isn't there? Uh, on that, That's taken away from the farmhand people that work there. They get free underwear. That's right. Yeah, little Betsy there. That's how she furnishes her, her wardrobe. You know what they do, what the little little farmhands exhibit does with those underwear? They make muzzles for the pigs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> on, tic on TikTok, when I say muzzles for the pigs, we're talking about their girlfriends. <laughs> Just saying. Yes. On TikTok, a woman posted a viral video of her trying to have a wholesome day with her dad. Oh, good luck on oh, that. Oh, God, yeah, way to go. Yeah. And shielding his eyes. Oh, you're here. Dad. How do you think you got here? <laughs> Your dad's never seen a bra. <laughs> or panties. Yeah. You're, I'm, 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 I hate to blow this to you, honey, but your dad's been removing bras one-handed since you were in a scrotum. <laughs> yeah, and we hate to blow this for you, honey, but uh, your mom probably blew your dad. So there you go. <laughs> your mom and dad probably did this ride, and he probably threw her bra down there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so she's trying to have a wholesome day, quote-unquote, with her dad and shielding his eyes so he wouldn't see the bras and underwear on the roof. Because, <laughs> you know, he's never seen them. What, are you afraid dad's going to pop a rod? <laughs> no, he's probably going to be afraid that his dad's going to go, that looks just like your mother's. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, look at your mom's boulder holder on the roof there. <laughs> that giant slingshot down there looks like hers, too. Before your mom's titties hit her knees, she used to throw her brother all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Now she needs it to hold them up where they're supposed to be. <laughs> don't it's see a helicopter any. ride when she doesn't wear them. I don't see any that say Lane Bryan on it. 
the Minnesota State Fair expects <laughs> riders on the Sky Glider to follow the safety rules, which include securing all items. <laughs> And not throwing or dropping anything from the ride, a State Fair spokesperson told NPR News on Wednesday with a somewhat straight face. I'm surprised that it's so wholesome. There's not anything disgusting on there. Like, no one took a shit and threw it on there. No one, you know, <laughs> but couple you, piss. But he was not at the fair. like, no. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's dropping shit bombs from the sky ride. <laughs> Butsy makes a painting at the Little Farmhands exhibit. <laughs> I'm going to paint that roof. <laughs> bucket full of diarrhea. I knew I saved it for something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised no one's thrown out vibrators or anything like that. Exactly. There's nothing like uh, out of the like, okay, cool, bra and underwear. Like you go into a local bar in Wisconsin or Minnesota, they got bras hanging on the wall. Yeah, I mean it's pretty tame. Yeah. They haven't done anything over the top. You know, like a plunger. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can see a plunger. The, Come on, Minnesotans, be original. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I mean, we could have thrown Kirk Cousins out on the roof, isn't there anything? Yeah, but he would have missed it by a mile. Uh, <laughs> he would have been high and to the left. <laughs> so little people up there. That's oh, what I do. oh, why? <laughs> why? Why not? You just have oh. a little person waving at you as you go past. It's awesome. <laughs> what? I don't know. That's like some sort of weird blind melon video you're putting together now. What's wrong with you? Jesus. The last line of the story says, next year, why not ditch the ditching and blow bubbles while on the ride? <laughs> Who's bubbles and why are we blowing them? <laughs> blow bubbles on the ride. Yeah, sure. Who's bubbles? Mm. I'm surprised there's not much more vomit on there either. That was a pretty clean roof. It was, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised more people don't throw up on this guy, right? I was going to say, drinking all day. Hot. When you come into the Sky Ride, as you, as you exit, you can buy a corn dog from the Sky Ride. There's no corn dog sticks on there? No, it's after you land. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. you can buy a corn dog from there. No, if they gave it to you on your way there, there'd be a, <laughs> there'd be a thousand corn dogs on the roof. <laughs> I'd throw a mustard laden corn dog on the roof and just let it sit there <laughs> that'd be worth the price of admission right there yeah mm -hmm. yeah so that's uh that's what we got there for dumb crime stupid criminals we end it with people throwing their dirty undies on the <laughs> <laughs> that's minnesotans for you though it, that's that cheap, that's cheap entertainment for us <laughs> yes it is hey gertie you want to throw your dirty panties out on the roof We'll never get caught. <laughs> we'll get away with one. Kind of like the Viking season last year. <laughs> That'll do it for uh, Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. Uh, oh boy, we got to wrap this up. Uh, that'll do it for Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals for this week. Tomorrow on the show, Supernatural News, the return of Ziggy's Picks. She has a special edition for the season. Uh, and uh, we've got lots of weird, wacky, wild stories for tomorrow. And then Thursday, the return of MJ Dixon. Ooh. We'll be talking Supernatural Africa. Nice. Yeah. So that's coming up. Um, next week, we're moving Adam Berry to next week. 
uh, just so you guys know. Uh, but his new book, Goodbye, Hello, is available right now for pre-order. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. That will be released on September 26th, but you can pre-order right now. Folks, I've read the book already. I've read it twice. And it is, uh, it is an amazing book. It's got some really great advice in that book. As it is not just a biography of Adam Berry, but it is also uh, a book with uh, it kind of... Uh, it looks into it delves into some cases and and delves into some paranormal opinion in investigating uh and where he's at with his ideas of of the living the dead and this whole thing called life so it's it's fascinating he's got some fascinating theories on paranormal investigation and what we're doing in this life so um pick it up pre-order it uh, it'll be well worth the money, well spent money. And I was fascinated by it. Hell, it even made me tear up twice. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's quite touching. So uh, it's called Goodbye, Hello. And it's available right now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. So, so uh, Bruiser, what you got going on this weekend? Training. Training the youth. Uh, if you want to be a professional wrestler, go to amlwrestling.com slash training. And uh, come here to Winston-Salem. Let me train you. There you go. There you go. All right, folks, that'll do it for today. Thank you so much for um, tuning in to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. We'll see you tomorrow for supernatural news on the best in paranormal podcasting. This has been Darkness Radio.